What is going on, everybody? Welcome to Future Projection, episode 37. This is a Baseball America podcast. I am Carlos Glazo, as always, joined by Ben Badler, as always. Today is Thursday, February 2nd, as we record this podcast. And Ben, we've done we've been doing a lot of fantasy drafting lately. Are you are you drafted out at this point? How are you doing? I yeah, we've put together, I think we've shipped at least eight or nine, ten different rankings over the past month so it's been is it really that many yeah well think about it our you, you just put out our our draft top 200 for the 2023 class our top 100 for the 2023 class high school players top 100 for college players obviously yeah. our main top 100 2024 <clears throat> high school top 100 rankings uh you know all of the i mean i don't know if you count all of the top 30s from the digital prospect handbook but certainly mm-hmm. all the top tens that have been coming out this month for each team our fypd top 100 rankings our dynasty top 100 rankings so it's been obviously you know our international board for and january our, 15th. A, gen- a general fantasy top 100 as well yeah. this week so if you like lists of baseball prospects come to baseball america yeah, but uh, yeah, from the first year player draft rankings that we put together, um, or mock draft too. So um, yeah, that's a, it's a fun it's a fun exercise to kind of reevaluate. Obviously, it has a, a fantasy tilt toward it, but looking at the combination of last year's draft class and and this year's international signs, we're especially heavily weighted toward the draft picks and kind of see where we are as a staff uh, and, and kind of how our opinions diverge on some of those players at the, at the top of the class. Yeah. How do you feel about your, uh, your team this year? I guess we can run through some of the picks if you want. Um, but we also checked out how we did last year. Uh, and I feel pretty good about my squad from our 2022 first year player draft. Not to brag. Yeah. I had to brag a little bit. Well, you know, People on Twitter determined that my my group from a year ago was the best. Matt told me it was overwhelmingly my group one. So, you know, I, a- I'm not often right, Ben. So when I am, I have to uh, I have to get really excited about it. Last was year, that, my no, go ahead. Was that like this year too, where you randomly chose the draft order and gave yourself the first pick in the draft? No, last year I actually had the third overall pick. But oh, okay. Uh, yeah, you know, what's funny is Matt, <laughs> I've done the random list, uh, generator each year and Matt each year has wound up with the fifth overall pick. So I think if anything, he has to be picking in the top two next year when we do this. But a year ago, my, my group was Brady house third overall, and this is first year player draft for fantasy. So all of the 2022 draftees and the 2022 international free agent signings, our players were drafting for fantasy. I had Brady House three, Colton Kowser at eight, James Wood at 13, Jordan Wicks at 18, Tyler Black at 23, and Andrew Painter all the way at 28. It's outside of like me patting myself on the back, it's kind of crazy how we thought about Painter a year ago at this time compared to how we think of him now. And it just sort of reinforces how, how quickly pitching prospects can change. I guess the same could be true for for all prospects, but it does feel like pitchers just have that increased volatility. Well, you are all, you've always been on, on James Wood. You've been a long time believer in him when he had a lot of doubters, myself included, 
by the way, I, I, I was pretty skeptical of him and the, the length of his swing and, and the strikeout rate that he had coming out of high school. And I mean, he just looks phenomenal. Yeah. Right now. I, I still think I'm probably one of the highest on him. Just looking at our top 100 uh, voting, I think I had him number four overall after the top three trio of Corbin Carroll, Gunnar Henderson, and Jackson Churio. And I guess we'll see what happens because he should be tested in 2023. And a lot of the elements of his game that I like, I feel like have a chance to... I mean, it's it's not necessarily a make-or-break season, but facing upper minors pitching is a real challenge for him that I'm excited to see how he handles it because he has shown in the past that there have been times where there are swing and miss questions. I mean, I think his his pure contact ability and his batting eye and his bat speed, all of that, I think he's going to have enough skill to adapt to those challenges, but he is a a bit of more of a polarizing player when you're talking about the top tier of prospects or so, but I do think his upside is, is pretty significant. I think um, he's also just, I mean, if you look at the corner outfield prospects in the minor leagues right now, I think he's like far and away. <laughs> I mean, you know, I guess, you know, Jordan Walker is moving to the outfield. So that's, uh, it's a little bit different there with him, but otherwise like there's a pretty big, gap after that between uh it just if you go down the list i'm, and we'll I'm some pulling up our list just potential to see next i can't corner outfielders there's a lot of good there's a lot of good center field prospects obviously mm-hmm. you know jackson churio and corbin carroll uh carter evan carter pca uh drew mm-hmm. jones obviously from him and elijah green from from this year's draft and sal freelick you know, the next one, it might be another guy that I'm probably highest on. That's Emmanuel Rodriguez. I think he's 46 on our 100. Is there any, I guess maybe Colton Kowser plays an outfield corner, but he also could play center field. Yeah. Yeah. And we have, I mean, yeah, we have Rodriguez. He's in center right now, right? I, I think probably long term, he goes mm-hmm. to a corner. What is it? What is it you like about Rodriguez so much? I just like the adjustments that he showed at the plate this past year. Um, I remember when I did the twin system several years ago, I think it was for the 2021 handbook, maybe might've been 2022, just a year ago. Um, I remember talking to some of the people in Minnesota's organization, just about how he went about hitting and it seemed very advanced for his age. And then we got to really see that this year in 2020 or last year in 2022. I like his approach. I like the on-base ability. I like the exit velocities. I just think he has a really advanced understanding of what he's doing at the plate. Uh, and I think he's going to, even if he isn't like a elite peer hitter, I think overall with his power, with his batting eye, he will be a plus offensive player. And I mean, you don't need him to be a fantastic defender if you have that offensive profile. And I think He's got a strong arm. I think he moves around pretty well. Like you said, he's in center field now. I think he probably will move to a corner, um, especially if you're talking about a, an organization like the Twins who have multiple really good center field um, potential players When by the time he's in the majors. I, I just really like the overall offensive package that, that he offers. Again, another guy who hasn't done it in the upper minors yet, so we'll see, but the dude had 
almost a 50% on base rate in 47 games in low A. I think that's pretty impressive. <laughs> Would you take him over Zach Veen right now? I think so. I mean, I'll pull up my top 100 just to see where I had them, but I'm pretty sure I had Emmanuel Rodriguez as a top 25 prospect in baseball, and I'm almost positive I didn't have Veen in that range. I think there are more questions with Veen now than I had with Veen a year ago. The The lack of impact is the, the most obvious one and the one that stands out. And, and I'm not overly concerned about that because I saw him show a ton of raw power in high school. The body has a chance to be massive if, if that's an emphasis of his. And I'm imagining it, it is going to be an emphasis of him uh, just in terms of player development moving forward. Let me see where I had them exactly. Okay, I had Veen at number... Let me refilter this to make sure it's my ranks and not the top 100. I had Veen at number 60 overall, and I had Emmanuel Rodriguez at number 22 overall. So I have a pretty big gap between them, but I also am pretty positive I'm the highest in the office on Rodriguez. And I think I have a tendency for for maybe for better or worse to get a little aggressive on upside guys. Like we we saw that it, it could pay off with a guy like Jordan Walker or with an Andrew Painter, but I was also really high on a guy like Jackson Job and Austin Martin. And so it's, it's not to say that it always works out, but I just like to be aggressive on guys that, that I'm on early um, rather than be maybe more cautious. I think it's, it's perfectly fair to be cautious on some of these players and wait for them to show it in the upper minors more, wait till they have a little bit bigger body of work. But if I feel really convicted, I'd, I'd rather just be aggressive now. Yeah. You have him juiced up pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to see where Everett, like the next highest person on him, just pulling up our other um, ballots. And I'm not going to give away who specifically did it since they're not here to share it. But we do have, I think, five of the writers who put together, five of the six writers who put together top 100s. Those top 50s are published on the website. So if you want to see like in detail where I have players, where JJ has players, where Matt, Kyle, uh, and Jeff have players. You can see that um, at Baseball America. It's it's published now. Yeah, the highest person outside of me is at number 44. And most people have him in the 50 to 65 range. So I, I'm certainly out on an island for Rodriguez. So, so take my opinions on him with a grain of salt, I would say. Yeah, well, the, the, one of the tough things with Rodriguez is, I mean, you, you're – you're just looking at a more limited body of work with him last year just because he was hurt, right? He had the knee injury, had surgery because of it. I think it's. I think he's always been likely to play a corner outfield spot long-term. I think this is going to be even more likely now. But like you said, when he was healthy, this guy was an on-base machine. There is swing and miss there to his game, but... He has a great eye for the strike zone. There's big power there. You know, I'm not saying he's Juan Soto. That's not the comparison I'm making. But yeah, the... in terms of the a player who, when he was early on in his career, was injured, missed a lot of time in the lower levels of the minor leagues, and then just absolutely rocketed through the minor league system after that. Again, I think Juan Soto is a much more advanced, pure hitter than Emmanuel Rodriguez, but there's probably some caution just with him having played 
what was it was like 50 games, less than 200 at bats. Uh, well, I could probably use plate appearances with him because especially <laughs> how often he walks. But um, I think that's maybe holding him down a little bit, although obviously not yeah. for you. <laughs> no, and I think honestly the Juan Soto, like his ascension makes me maybe as part of the reason I want to be aggressive on players like this because I think I'm trying to think. I'm going to pull it up now just so I'm accurate with the dates here. But I was doing the Nationals handbook when Soto was still a prospect. And this was back when Victor Robles was the number one prospect in the system. Soto still hadn't fully broken out yet. I think this was our 2018 handbook. I ranked him the number two overall prospect in the system. I don't remember exactly where we had him. Okay, so entering the year, he was the number 56 prospect on our 2018 top 100 list, the preseason list. And just hearing about the adjustments he made at the plate in some ways reminds me of Emmanuel Rodriguez. I don't think they're the same players and I'm not comparing them as like just overall players or, or even hitters overall, but some of the aspects of how people talk about how Emmanuel is able to make adjustments reminds me of how people talked about Soto making those adjustments. I do think to your point, contact overall contact is a question with him. He had a 32% miss rate in 2022, which is a bit concerning. Um, but the reason I'm not, I'm not totally out on him because of that is, is the chase rate was exceptional. It was a 12% chase rate. I would hope that's something that continues as he moves up against better pitching. Um, but yeah, I'm just, I'm excited about him. I don't want to repeat the same, I would say under ranking of, of Soto at the time. I don't know if, if we were lower or higher than other people in the industry on Soto. I think he was probably a guy who caught a lot of people off guard, but whenever I hear people talking about Emmanuel Rodriguez and, and just how advanced he seems as a hitter, it, it gets me excited, I guess. Yeah. Is there, are there other outfield prospects right now, uh, especially the maybe guys who project to be corner outfielders who jump for you? Cause I'm looking at guys right now. And, you know, like we said, what you get past, you know, James Wood, and it seems like it kind of thins out. <laughs> yeah. Me. I mean, I, it, this is probably the case for most of our lists where there are not a lot of corner outfielders on the list in general. And there are probably a lot of players who are going to play corner outfield after they graduate, whether it's a situation like in Arizona where you have three legitimately awesome center fielders and you can't all play center field. So someone will just have to move. Um, or, or some of these players, their speed will back up as they get stronger and more physical. One, one player, honestly, who, who I think might play center or might not play center field in the future is Elijah Green. And that might be crazy because he's an athletic freak. He's a 70 runner. Um, but you just don't see players his size that often playing center field in the big leagues. And I mean, depending on, on who the Nationals have in center field by the time he's ready, maybe it's a case where he's just an elite corner outfielder like a Jason Hayward type it's different body type and, and green is a more explosive athlete than Jason Hayward but it wouldn't shock me if he got most of his playing time in a corner um I still think that he could be a good defensive center fielder it's just a rare body type to see although after having said that I, I think we also have seen in the same way that bigger shortstops are playing the position more regularly we've seen a lot of center fielders on really strong big league teams who are not the typical center field profile. Uh, and I think 
positioning in the outfield has advanced just like positioning in the infield has. We have good ideas of where hitters tend to hit their fly balls. And so you can make up for uh, a lack of foot speed compared to maybe 15 years ago. Um, so it is interesting, but to your point, there are not a lot of right now corner outfielders who I'm excited about outside of James Wood and, and Jordan Walker. Uh, the only other one that I would mention maybe is Oscar Colas, but I mean, how excited are we going to get about a guy like that? Yeah. I, I mean, I still, I mean, I like George Valera too. It's he's always had a beautiful swing. I think it's another guy with a, a pretty good approach, a lot of hitterish tendencies to him. Guardians outfielder, uh, international signing out of the Dominican Republic, uh, going to say a few years ago, but probably <laughs> longer than that. Um, so, you know, like him, I, I think one guy who's pretty fascinating to me too is Joey Weimer with the Brewers. And mm-hmm. I, like he, again, you talk about guys who don't look like physically, like they could play center field, but Joey Weimer actually, he could play center field again in that, you know, six foot five, but super athletic Jason Hayward type mold because he he is a legit plus runner he plays all out he's plays with full effort he might you know (laughs) you know him and Garrett Mitchell and Sal Freelick and Jackson Churio the Brewers have a lot of different they're similar to the D-backs in in the the sense they really have four center fielders in their system yeah so I, I think just with the makeup of that team it's it's more likely that Weimer ends up playing right field. He has an eighty arm. He's he's again a, a great athlete. He can really run. He'll he'll be a plus defender if he goes to right field. And then he has you know well above average raw power, uh, but also you know some unconventional things to his swing. He's he's toned it down a little bit. So far, it has worked for him. But we've we've also seen, you know, it's it's still a higher swing and miss rate, a higher chase rate with him too. And we saw him, you know, struggle toward the end of last season in Double A. Although then when he got promoted to Triple A, it's like he took off again. It seems like actually a lot of Brewers players improved once they got to Triple A last season. So um, he's. He, he, he's a really, again, you talk about another polarizing player. I think he fits into that camp because there's just tantalizing physicality, athleticism, yeah. tools, power, obviously, too, and, and potentially the ability to play a premium position or if not be a good defender on a corner. But there is still that, uh, you know, some of the swing decisions, the tendency to chase outside the zone and, and will it play against major league pitching there's there's still some divisiveness there when you talk to scouts about him yeah you mentioned a lot of the physical traits that a player that i was thinking of probably has in common and that's chase the louder the 2022 first round pick for the guardians he's probably going to be a player who's a bit polarizing as well he's six foot four 235 pounds does not look like your typical center fielder like we've talked about with a few guys so far but at James Madison, he played center field and he played it really well. I know Jeff was able to see him in the Cape Cod League and he played in a in an outfield that was 
pretty big and difficult to play with with deep gaps. And Jeff was really impressed with how he was able to handle that. I got to see him move around well. He, he doesn't have the the quickest first step, I don't think, but he moves very, very well underway. He's had plus or better run times in the past. Uh, I think even if he slows down, he's still going to be an above average runner in the future. He is not a guy who has made his pro debut yet. So we really, I think maybe more than a lot of players have a lot of questions or just curiosity with the louder because he comes from a smaller school at James Madison, put up just silly college numbers. Uh, the underlying hitting information was excellent as well in terms of contact, in terms of chase rates. Uh, and it's not like he never played against good pitching. He was the MVP of the Cape Cod League. And then during the spring of his draft year, he looked really bad against Florida State in a, th- a three-game series against two really good left-handed pitchers. That's when I saw him in person. The swing looked a little bit stiffer, a little bit steeper than I was expecting. Uh, but then shortly after that, he was back to his same old ways, continued mashing. Then he dealt with a broken foot that kind of cut his season short. So fell from top 10 range, which I think he was solidly in at the beginning of the year towards the middle of the first round for a team like the guardians who, I don't know, they don't have, they haven't drafted a lot of hitters who are this toolsy in recent years that I can think of. And maybe part of that is just because he got hurt and they were able to draft a player that they, they typically don't get access to, but He's fascinating to me. I don't think he's a center fielder in the long run. That's why I'm talking about him here. But I know there are people on our staff and there are probably other scouts who think he has a chance to stick in center field. But it's a guy that might be an above average hitter. He has plus raw power. He's a good runner. He's got a plus arm. Uh, he's just littered with tools. And if the if the contact ability stays similar to what it was at James Madison against pro pitching, I mean, you're you're looking at like an all-star caliber player in my mind. Okay. Were there, I don't know if there's anybody deeper down as far as outfielders, either from this past year's draft class or other outfielders from, uh, you know, maybe just who aren't the famous names. Obviously, we keep talking about, you know, Drew Jones and Corbin Carroll and <laughs> Jackson mm-hmm. Churio all the time, but I don't know. I mean, if have anybody. we... Have we talked about Spencer Jones too much on this podcast? I I don't want to over over talk about any player, but he's another one who, I mean, he he had massive questions pre-draft because of his strikeouts. He's a long-levered guy. Uh, A lot of scouts in the industry I talk to just aren't really excited about a first-round player with that strikeout rate because the track record of that player is not very good, but Spencer had a really strong pro debut made more contact than people expected. He's legitimately an an athletic freak, six foot seven, exceptionally strong, runs exceptionally well. Another guy who who plays right field, but plays it very well, um, has a ton of power. I'm sure he's already got an Aaron Judge comps because he's a big, tall outfielder who the Yankees drafted. Um, But just on his own merits, I think he's fascinating because his upside is so significant and his athleticism is so freakish that now we're seeing maybe a better hitter than the most of the industry expected pre-draft. And he would be another guy that I point to that I'm excited about on the corner outfield side of things. There's some, like I, I could see both of these two that I'm talking about. If, if they come out this spring and continue hitting, I imagine both of them will jump onto a top 100 pretty quickly. Um, in terms of players further down, 
outfielders further down, I would have to open up a bigger list and look through. But are there any other guys that that you think maybe people haven't talked about a lot or just guys that that you like who, who aren't at the top of the list? For yeah, us? I can give you a couple names that are way, way deeper down the system right now. One of them is Josue DePaula, an outfielder who the Dodger signs out of the Dominican Republic. He's actually born in New York, but he was signed out of the Dominican Republic. He's a, he's like, he's a second cousin of Stefan Marbury. And I don't know if you remember Sebastian Telfair too. Like he was this prodigy, like teenage basketball star back in the day, played in the NBA too. Um, Love a multi-sport so, athlete. Yeah, so he, yeah, so some bloodlines there. Um, six foot four, some physicality there, but it's it's more just the the hitting ability and, and the polish that he has for his age that he showed last year in the Dominican Summer League. It's a very adjustable swing, uh, good swing path through through the hitting zone too. And we saw a really good performance last year in in the DSL. Walks about equal to strikeouts, got on base, uh, showed some power too. I think, you know, not going to bring a ton, I don't think, defensively but the offensive ability um for from the left side is is pretty exciting i think there's going to be more more power to come so i think he's somebody who's not super famous right now but i I think will be once he comes to the states and, and more people start to see him play and and the same i would say for luis lara who was a, a brewers international signing uh, a year ago, a uh, very different type of player than DePaula. He is smaller. He's about five foot nine, switch hitter, uh, but great athlete and a, a swing that really works. Um, so another another play with very good performance uh, offensively, good eye for the strike zone. Uh, it's a short swing, makes a, a lot of contact, puts a lot of balls in play. Uh, can take advantage of his speed, uh, well above average runner, has the athleticism to play center field. And, you know, there's some sneaky power in there too for his size. So, um, you know, not saying he's going to be a, you know, 30 plus home run guy, but I, I think he'd be a, you know, 15, 20 home run type hitter uh, and, and get on base at a, a pretty strong clip and play a premium position in, in center field too. That's a good one. W- one other name that I I was just kind of scanning through the list of outfielders and, and stumbled upon this name because he's a guy who's pretty consistently exceeded the expectations that, that I personally had for him and maybe the industry overall as well. But that's Cardinals outfielder Alec Burleson. When he was drafted in the second round, I think supplemental second round in 2020, he was a really good two-way player, um, probably more of a, a hitting prospect in pro ball because he didn't throw – Super hard on the mound, but really productive player for East Carolina. Um, never shown a ton of power in game. There was some raw power that, that he never really got to. But I always kind of questioned the profile because it was this like hit first corner profile without a lot of supplemental tools, a lot of pressure on the bat. But you look up a few years later and he's a career 300 hitter in the minors. He made his major league debut in 2022. 
um, makes a lot of contact, has solid power. I mean, this isn't typically a profile that that I would fall in love with, but he's just always hit. He makes a lot of contact, plus bat-to-ball skills, solid exit velocities. I mean, the Cardinals seem to always have players like this who they're just not the sexiest profile, not the most heralded prospects, but they're able to develop solid regular everyday players. And I feel like Burleson was a guy who was at least in consideration for maybe the back of the top 100. I don't, I don't think he was on it. Um, but he's one that, that I just look at. And I'm like, man, maybe I've really underrated him the entirety of the time that I've covered him and known about him, or he's just one of these players who's just a natural hitter. And he's just always going to be a little bit better than you expect. Um, and maybe if he was a guy that I'd, I'd seen more consistently, it'd be one of those players who, who really, you like a lot once you see them for a full series rather than you show up and you see them for a game and nothing really jumps out at you uh, or nothing really wows you in a batting practice or a workout setting, but just one of those steady Eddie type players that a week later, you're like, man, this, this guy's always putting himself in a good position to hit. He's always on base. Um, he's a fascinating one because of that, because he's, I, I just think he's a good player. Yeah. What about looking forward to the draft this year, as far as, Outfielders. I mean, obviously, you know, talk about Max Clark and Walker Jenkins forever. But you wrote about another guy, Deuce Robinson, who I think is pretty yeah unusual cat coming into the draft this year. Deuce, Deuce Robinson is is utterly fascinating for a number of different reasons. I mean, I think in in a lot of ways the industry is playing a little bit of catch up with Deuce because. If you're not a, a football fan, a college football fan, or an, or an NFL draft Nick, you might not know about him, but he's, it seems like the consensus uh, top tight end prospect in this incoming college recruiting class. Yesterday was National Signing Day. He's one of the highest rated unsigned NFL, or not NFL, college football prospects in the country. Uh, and he also has a ton of baseball talent. I mean, last summer... I saw Deuce for the first time in person at the area code games. He was playing with the Southeast based nationals program instead of the four corners uh, Reds team, which was a little bit odd because he's from Arizona. Um, but either way, he showed some of the easiest and loudest raw power at the event. It was maybe double plus there. The ball carries a little bit further at San Diego's field, which maybe makes it a little bit tougher to evaluate, but Regardless, it's easy plus raw power. He's got a ton of strength. He's six foot six. Um, I think the swing has some issues. Um, there are some mechanical flaws maybe that that need to be corrected, but this is also a guy who is a legitimate NFL caliber football playing talent who has been a multi-sport athlete for years now. He also plays basketball. Uh, his father played baseball and football at Florida State in college. And he's a guy who it sounds like is getting a lot of attention early this spring from front offices. He's done a couple workouts already for big league teams. I think he's going to continue doing workouts, but he's not playing uh, high school baseball this spring, which is going to complicate and, and make his profile even more polarizing because I think there were probably plenty of people in the industry for the past few years, really the entire time he's been high school, who just assumed he's going to go play football. He's going to go to a power five school. 
um, star there, wherever he goes. I think Georgia is one of the Georgia, USC, Texas are teams that, that commonly get linked to him. Um, he'll go play at one of those powerhouse football schools, go to the NFL, and he'll be one of these players who, man, you kind of wonder and say, what if he did play baseball? But it, it sounds like he wants to do both. Um, and so me and JJ wrote a piece on National Signing Day just kind of laying out Deuce as a baseball player, the risk factors he has, the questions he has, the talent, the natural talent and tools that he has on the baseball field. Um, and, and JJ really wrote a lot about how tough it is to do the two sport path um, these days. I, I think both sports have gotten increasingly specialized. Um, there are not many examples of players who have signed with a team and done the pro ball route while playing college football, which is still possible. I mean, Kyler Murray is probably the the biggest example of a player who potentially could have done this drafted number nine overall by the A's. Um, they signed him. He wound up going back to school, playing college football was the number one overall pick in the NFL draft. Uh, and obviously went on to play football as one of the better quarterbacks in the league now. And the A's, uh, they paid him a bonus. They, they never got him to play baseball and you don't get a comp pick for that because he signed. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating player it's a fascinating situation uh and i'm really curious to see how teams are going to handle him because i don't think they have the greatest history on him because of the multi-sport background because he hasn't played a lot of high school baseball um and so yeah it'll be it'll be really interesting to see what happens because his upside is massive i mean if a player like jordan adams a few years ago who was a a two-way commit to north carolina a really talented football player who blew up at the nhsi if he could have gone in the first round or, or he went in the first round. I, I really don't see why Deuce couldn't go in the first round, do a similar pop up in the spring, similar to a Jordan Adams or, or a Keone Cavaco. Cavaco was a guy who really impressed in workouts and was kind of a late riser and, and Deuce is more physical than both those players, but probably a bit more raw overall as well. So I don't know. He he's, he's extremely fascinating to me. Maybe one of the biggest, high variance players in the draft, I should say. Ben, did you did you ever see Deuce as an underclassman? No, because again, like you said, he hasn't played a ton of like showcase or like summer circuit baseball. So like you said, so he's not gonna play high school baseball in the spring, right? From everything I've heard, that that's the case. I believe they're just doing workouts. I think he's gonna go to the combine um, which was just announced the combine will be June 20th through 25th this year at um, Chase Field, funny enough, right in his neck of the woods in Arizona. Um, so, so, right there. so that makes it kind of a tough evaluation. I'm sure when he does a workout, he's going to absolutely uh, shine in that respect just for yes. the power and the BP display I mean, he's going to put I, on. I remember sitting at the Erico games. We were actually sitting with his father at the time while he was – taking batting practice and just again this is the first time i'd ever seen him i i knew that he was a, a really talented football prospect i had no clue about his talent on the baseball field because like you said you had never seen him as an underclassman you just didn't have a ton of information and he was just putting balls like i i don't even know how to describe it it was just super easy super easy power tons of strength tons of bat speed and what was honestly most impressive, even more than the BP, was he performed in-game. And he, he came into that event with very few reps, very little practice leading into the event, especially compared to his peers who have 
been on the circuit the whole summer. Um, he, he'd been doing a lot of football activities and he hit, uh, I think he hit 600 in a four game sample. He walked four times compared to one strikeout. He tripled, uh, he hit a single, uh, and, and I think that there are a lot of things you can work with offensively because he has this big step in the bucket kind of motion. Mm-hmm. He really lets his, um, his lower half leak out to the pull side. You can just slow down the video we have in the story and you can see that his, his leg is really pointed down the third baseline or towards the shortstop in a lot of ways. And he gives up a lot of the, the outer half of the plate, but, but even while doing that, he got one 91 mile per hour fastball, I believe kind of up and out and just, it was one of the better, his better jobs at, at staying back with his hands, even though his front half or his lower half, excuse me, he had kind of already pulled out. Um, but he kept his hands back and he drove the ball the opposite way to right center. I think he doubled on that pitch, but that just kind of showed the strength and the impact ability that he had. That I think if you if you have this guy just focusing on baseball for two years, it's kind of scary to think about what he could be. Um, but at the same time, a lot of the high school hitters that the industry has missed on have been players that you don't have a lot of track record uh, of them hitting a- against quality competition. And that's going to be the biggest risk factor in addition to however you're supposed to evaluate the the football aspect of this. Because, I mean, do you think, Ben, I'll just start, do you think it's possible these days to excel in baseball and football at the levels we're talking about in a Power 5 conference as a legitimate NFL prospect and, and play professional baseball because there used to be more examples of this in previous eras. And, and I wonder if it's just, if both sports require too much these days, the sports are too specialized. I don't know. I would never want to write anyone off, but it seems way more challenging today than it would have been in Bo Jackson's time, for instance. I don't know enough about football to have an educated opinion on, yeah. on that. But if we, I mean, let's, if, if we go, if we fast forward to the draft date this year, so July, 2023, and we look back over the last, you know, 12 to 18 months of at bats of history, like actual in-game at bats of history that you're going to have on him. Like you said, you're, you're not going to have high school baseball. Your summer looks from the previous year were what? Area code games. I think one other event that I'm aware of. Yeah, we're talking about pretty limited game sample here. And I think, I think, I mean, baseball is a skill sport. And obviously having outstanding tools helps and being an outstanding athlete is great. And, And there is something to be said for, you know, throwing a hitter in against the top pitchers in the country at an event like the area code games and saying all right now go hit these guys when you haven't you know been accustomed to seeing those type of arms the way the other hitters at that event have have been doing throughout the you know throughout the last couple months of the summer so that that is fair but i also think and this is not something specific to you know to to the player himself but i think in general there's a tendency in the industry to overvalue just great football players and dream a little too much on oh imagine what we could do once this guy starts focusing 
just on baseball full time. If I mean, there's a player for 2024, Bryce Clavon, who mm-hmm. I think is a very skilled baseball player. Now he's also a you know a super uh, explosive athlete, a ton of bat speed, uh, foot speed. Um, not that you know, not that big. Obviously, doesn't have uh, Deuce's size, uh, and he, and he's not the same caliber of you know he's not the, the same caliber of football prospect. Uh, you know, at least according to the the football equivalents of Baseball America uh, that are out there. Uh, but he could play Division One football. I, I think he's a skilled player, and that's that's the kind of player I would bet on now you you know yeah sometimes sometimes you get a you know a john carlo stanton who was more you know a great athlete who was more on the raw end and that's kind of like the ultimate dream and the ultimate goal for a player to Mm -hmm. turn into that kind of guy but i think the the risk is significantly more than the um you know, prob- probably what it frankly would take, I would think, to to sign him away from baseball. I mean, how, you think about like like Lonnie White Jr., for example. The Pirates drafted him a couple of years ago out of uh, out of high school. Could have gone to Penn State to play football. I mean, I, I think at, at you know Lonnie White Jr. just played more more baseball, right? You had more mm-hmm. more history with him at at that point, right? Yeah, I think that's pretty safe to say. He was on the circuit, I believe, the whole summer. Yeah, and I, you know, I saw him play high school baseball too. Yeah, I mean, exactly. To me, it's it's a, like you said, it's a it's a fascinating situation and a, mm-hmm. a really unusual one where mm-hmm. you're just going to have such a, a limited game history on a player who obviously has tremendous athleticism, size, and power, but is you know just not doesn't have the same level of of refinement or the same level of history mm-hmm. um compared to and i'm i'm trying to think of two of of the highest ranked like two-way the highest ranked football prospects who are also solid baseball players in the in their own rights and and trying to think back who to who's the last guy who was highest rated in football who actually did play baseball because there are guys like justin fields who was a solid baseball prospect out of high school, but was obviously much better as a football prospect. Jerry and Ely mm-hmm. um, was a really talented two-way player, went to college and was just always better on the football field. Um, Kyler Murray is obviously one where, where he really blew up in college as a baseball player and then blew up even more on the football field when he finally took over as the QB one. I mean, there are guys like a John Reese Plumley who are doing the two way thing or have done the two way thing. Will Taylor um, is playing both at Clemson right now. There are just not many great recent examples of players like that who have gone on to play baseball and had success. And I have to imagine that for all of the upside that we're talking about with, with Deuce on the baseball field, I mean, the way that football scouts and analysts are talking about him is like a a bona fide nfl talent i mean you're talking about a program like georgia who's top two or three program in college football i'd imagine at this point if he goes there and dominates i mean i mean we could be just watching him in the nfl three four years from now and saying hey remember when we were talking about deuce hitting all these home runs at the area code games it just it feels hard for me to believe that like that he's not going to have a ton of success on the football field. And, and to your point, what is the 
what is the signing bonus amount that will be enough for him to do the two-way thing? And are there going to be teams who are satisfied with that risk to reward proposition? I don't know. Probably get paid a decent amount to play college football too, right? Oh yeah. It has to be. (laughs) It's a little different than, than the, than it was even just a few years ago. Yeah. So that's a, that's a fascinating one. I, I think the 2023 draft class overall is solid on the outfield front. I think it's a little more top heavy than most years. We can talk through some of these guys, Ben. You've seen a lot of the high school players. I actually think the high school outfield group is a bit thinner than most years. We have Max Clark and Walker Jenkins obviously juiced up our our board uh, at number five and number six overall. We've got a great duo of college prospects and Dylan Cruz and Wyatt Langford at the top. But after that high school duo, there's a pretty big gap to the next best high school outfielder in my mind. And then really throughout the top 100, there aren't a lot of sure thing high school outfielders like maybe we've seen in the past. Now, at the same time, I, I always think the outfield position is really fun because I wrote about this in the Stockwatch this past week. You get a lot of athleticism and you get a lot of tools. You get a lot of power. You get a lot of speed. So there are a lot of players that you can dream on. And the players who have those tools and pure hitting ability are the guys who are at the very top of the list, like a Dylan Cruz or like a Max Clark. Um, but I think it's really easy to fall in love with some players even further down the board who maybe you just you really like because they they're burners they can run they're eighth grade runners like Kendall George they're extremely athletic and coming into their own as baseball players like Homer Bush at Grand Canyon uh, they've got a ton of power like a Deuce Robinson or like a Drew Brutcher at South Florida uh, then you have well-rounded guys like Johnny Johnny Farmello who's here in Virginia out of high school uh, Will Gasparino is another player who's exciting to me. Really tall kid, been around the game for a long time, has power and speed combo that's exciting. So the outfield classes are always fun because you get a large variety of player types and you get a large, just quantity, you get a big quantity of tools and athleticism from the group as a whole. Um, but what are your thoughts on this year's outfield class for, for 2023? Well, I'm curious because you talked about, you know, premium runner, premium athlete, and that's that's Enrique Bradfield, right? The center fielder yep. at Vanderbilt, who is, I mean, out, outstanding, like you said, outstanding runner, defender, athlete, no question about the defense in center field. He's performed well at the plate in college where where are scouts at on him right now because he also does seem a little bit unusual he he does have so many tools especially that play on the defensive side he's you know the bat to ball skills seem like they're there offensively it seems like more just a question of how much offensive impact is there going to be and then how Mm -hmm. high does that put you in the draft picture yeah, he's he's definitely. I, I feel like is polarizing now and will only continue to be more polarizing. He, it certainly seems like he's kind of outside of the top tier of players on our board, and I would maybe even include like a Braden Taylor or an Aiden Miller as like kind of being right on that fringe uh, of being like solidly in the top ten. There, there are people that I've talked to in the industry that sees Enrique Bradfield as like certainly in the top ten, and there are other people who are like, yeah. You know, the lack of impact, we would have him further down the board. So I think it depends on your team's philosophy, your own personal philosophy. Like 
I mean, where would Nick Madrigal go if he was being redrafted right now? I think in, mm. in some ways they're similar players. They're they're up the middle athletes. Enrique Bradfield is a better runner, probably a better defender uh, for his position. I, w- I would say almost certainly a better defender for his position. Um, I guess just how you value outfield versus middle infield. Uh, great bat to ball skills and real power questions. Because, I mean, Enrique Bradfield is not like he has a very lean frame. He's a little bit taller than you might think. I think he could add some weight and he did go from one home run as a freshman in 67 games to eight home runs as a sophomore. But there was another player a few years ago who had a similar jump in home run power at Vanderbilt going from one to, I believe nine or something like that. And that was Austin Martin. And we still have the power questions about Austin Martin. Now, if I I had exit velocity data, for Austin Martin at the time, like we do for Enrique Bradfield now, uh, it's possible that we would have been much more skeptical of that profile. Um, so I don't know that the home run numbers are like a guarantee that more power is going to come. And, and I think that you would probably optimistically put like a 30 on his future game power right now for Enrique Bradfield. So what sort of value does a player like that have in today's game? I mean, the last... 10 years or so power has been at a premium and extremely fast defensive oriented players like Bradfield have been less valued. It seems like stolen bases haven't been like the meta of major league baseball for years now, potentially that changes with the rule changes. And I think Bradfield regardless of, of era is a guy who you let run on the bases because he is, such a dynamic runner and he is such an efficient base stealer. I mean, he, he stole 47 bags his freshman year. Then he stole 46 bags his sophomore year. And he's been caught a grand total of six times. He, he didn't get caught a single time as a sophomore. It's like a 93 or better percent success rate as a runner. So I, I just think he's an odd profile. He's not a typical profile. And it really is going to vary drastically, I would imagine, team to team on on how you value that. I mean, even your park, I would imagine the Rockies value a guy like Bradfield more than some other teams because of the field they play in and the gaps and how he could just cover so much ground there. And and as a hitter, if he's hitting balls into the gaps, his slug is going to be way better because he's turning those singles into doubles and those doubles into triples. But if you're playing at a much smaller park, maybe he's less valuable and, and how... I guess, how much do those factors change your value for the player? How how much does that move the needle in terms of where he's at on your board? He's one of the toughest players to peg overall, but I think a guy like Enrique Bradfield is also just good for baseball because he's so fun to watch play. He's such a dynamic player. He's He's always a player that you can just watch him. Don't watch the ball. Just watch what Enrique Bradfield is doing, and he's always making a play, showing explosive speed, I mean, he's just one of those old school fun players to watch. And so I hope that that teams value him. And I hope he he finds success in pro ball because I think we need more players like him. But where are you at with this profile then? Well, I think the stolen base rules will enhance his value a little bit too. I mean, how how would you stack him up maybe compared to Sal Freelich, another college outfielder who went in the first round, who's, you know, speedy guy, doesn't have a lot of power, but makes a ton of contact. Um, it seems like my my perspective is, you know, Brad uh, Bradfield's a better, you know, has a 
a tick better speed. I mean, not that Freelich is lacking speed. Uh, you know, a more natural defender, I think, in in center field. And then Freelich maybe has a little bit more, maybe more sneaky pop in, in his back. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, what do we have on Freelich's power right now? I would imagine we have like a 40 on yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, you get a lot of like somewhere between like 30 and 40 grade okay. future power projections on him. Yeah. That's a good comparison because I do think Frelick, I mean, even just physically was a little bit more uh, strong and, and well-built at the same time. I think you're spot on that, that Bradfield is a grade better as a runner. He's definitely a much more instinctual um, defensive center fielder. I mean, Bradfield has been probably the best center fielder in college baseball since the day he stepped foot on campus. Frelick played a couple different positions, moved to center field during his draft year. I think he's an impactful defender, but I, I think Enrique Bradfield is like a Pete Crow Armstrong or a Drew Jones caliber defender, which would be one of the better defensive outfielders that I've covered. Um, so yeah, I think it just comes down to the power and I guess maybe even the like the hit quality. Enrique Bradfield has a very level swing, which I, I think suits him. I don't I don't think every player needs to have like a leverage swing for power. He doesn't have a ton of power, so it makes more sense to hit hard line drives, hit the ball on the ground, bunt. I mean, we haven't talked about bunting, but I think he's another guy who can use that. I'm I'm as probably anti-bunt as maybe anybody in the BA office, but for Enrique Bradfield, it's a, a tool in his tool set that's valuable and puts pressure on defenses. So that is an interesting comparison. It, it feels like Sal Frelick is more of a typical profile than Bradfield is because he is more he's more towards the middle of the 2080 scale with the speed and power, whereas Bradfield is more towards the extremes. Right. Um, so kind of balancing that is a little bit tricky, but I think it's useful to think of him through the lens of a self relic because it, it wouldn't be shocking if they turn out to be similar players, I guess. Yeah. There's, there's actually a high school player this year who I know exactly who you're going to talk, talk about. Frelick. Can I guess? Yeah, go ahead. It's gotta be Kendall George, right? No, no. Oh, I would of Freilich or of Bradfield? Of of Sal Freilich. Okay, hang on. Let me let me take a look on the list and see if I can guess this one. Oh, where's my draft list? All right, I won't delay it too long if I can't get to it, Ben. I have got our outfield list. I'm assuming you're talking about an outfielder. I'm th I'm talking about a high school outfielder. Are you going to talk about Dylan Head? I am. All right. I am. Yes. Yeah. I got it. Another. That's a good one. Not you know super physical, but left-handed hitter who's a really good athlete also a 70 runner, can play center field, and has great bat-to-ball skills. I mean, Kendall George is fascinating, too, because he's, you know. Yeah, so originally I thought you were talking about Enrique Brad. I feel like Kendall George is the high school Enrique Bradfield comp for this class, but I do agree with you that, that Dylan Head is a, a nice South Relic comparison. Yeah, I, I mean, Kendall George, you know, high school outfielder in Texas, fascinating to watch because he's, you know, pretty little as – very little power very but has little. outstanding contact skills and he is a legit 80 runner like he he would he was at pdp last year and he would just you know he, he would hit some you know line drives to the outfield for hits but he would also just hit a routine ground ball and it was like safe you have yep. no chance if he had consistent hit the ball hard than he soft. had consistent 80 grade times for me he would bunt all the time he would jailbreak sub 3.9 second home to first times i really think he's the enrique bradfield of the high school class 80 grade runner out of ten of power small he's got like a shorter frame than bradfield too so i really don't know how much 
power or strength you're ever going to get to. But again, I think like impact defender and center, but I'll let you go on about Dylan head. Cause I think he is the next outfielder in the high school class after our Max Clark Walker Jenkins duo. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Kendall George is super exciting and, and fun to watch. Whereas I think Dylan head, you know, a, you know, more power, uh, some more physicality there, you know, he's not going to, Again, he's not going to be like a big, big slugger, but I think along the lines of South Frail, like somebody who can play a premium position in center field, well above average speed, and has really good contact skills too from from the left side with enough juice in there to you know be a 15, 20 home run type guy down the road potentially. So you know he doesn't obviously have the you know the three year track record uh, at college that that Freelich had when he went in the first round, but I think he could end up ultimately a a similar type of player and it, it seems like he was was correct me if i'm wrong but he was a player who who moved up a little bit in our most recent rankings up yeah or? he did he did he moved up um i think we had him again i have too many tabs open here to tell you with accuracy right now but he was one of the more significant or i should say more consistent up arrow feedback players that we got um when i was just doing a lot of soliciting a lot of feedback from the industry on our top 200 draft update just consistently uh people were telling us to move him up the board so i probably had him a little bit too low prior to this because it's not like from from this draft update um to our previous one he had, he had played anything or improved as a player probably just a little bit light on him but he moved um i can tell you exactly how much he moved uh all right we have him right now at in the top 40 range previously he was around 70 so that's going from like the second supplemental round or or late second round to first comp round first supplemental round early second basically jumping up a whole round and i mean to your point i just think he's a very well-rounded player his offensive approach is strong uh he doesn't chase out of the zone he, he manipulates the barrel well i think he's a great defender he got some of the best reviews in terms of his defensive ability in the outfield on our preseason All-America teams, which we can talk through those as well if you want. But Dylan was the third first team outfielder in this class right beside Max Clark and Walker Jenkins. So um, the industry is is in on him and they're just, again, unless you want to be really critical of the power, I think he does everything really well as one of the better athletes, one of the better runners in the class, one of the better defenders in the class. Um, just does a lot of things really well. Yeah. And then you mentioned Johnny Farmello too, another high school outfielder kind of trending up. It seemed, I remember seeing him and might've been a couple of years ago and really liked the way his swing worked, just the way he managed his bats, just very compact, very balanced. Seems like he tracked the ball. Well, um, used the whole field, a lot of barrels in game and, and then he had some physicality too to project on power and i think where i, I probably underrated him was that i didn't realize just how good of an athlete and a runner that he yeah. was it seems like oh okay like i i liked him thinking you know maybe he ends up in a, a corner mm -hmm. and now seeing the you know the run times he's posting it's like ooh, this is this is even even more exciting than i than i thought and i already liked him quite a bit yeah, I think everything you said was was spot on. He was another big riser for us in this last update. Really well-rounded, um, projectable frame, six foot two, two hundred pounds. Now, I think 
again, he's not, I, I don't imagine he'll ever be a, a massive slugger, but I think he'll have solid power. It wouldn't shock me if he developed above average power as he continues adding weight. I like the swing like you do. It's very clean. It's very consistent, uh, solid approach. And yeah, he's a plus runner can probably play all three outfield positions and play them well. So why don't you just keep that guy in center field um, and, and see how he develops physically. Um, but maybe one of the better all around outfielders in this class, there's nothing super explosive on his scouting report now, but I, I don't think you can look at any area of his game and, and point to it as a clear weakness either. So if you like that profile as a left-handed hitter out of high school, who, who also had a really strong showcase season and fall just in terms of performance, um, there's a lot to like there. And he's, he was definitely an up arrow guy for us as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very much in on that one. Mm-hmm. What did you think about our preseason all America teams and the results Ben? because every year it's, it's very informative. It's very fun for me to just see how scouting directors vote on this and to just let everyone know if you're not aware every year we do preseason all America teams at baseball America, it's industry voted. So we'll send a ballot to every team's scouting department and let directors or, or assistants, uh, if they want to delegate the responsibility to assistants, uh, to vote on our preseason All-America team. So first of all, we just really appreciate teams taking the time to do that because I think it adds just a different um, just a different element to preseason All-America teams that maybe separates ours from, from a preseason list that's more about production now or performance, and it does factor in future potential and future talent. Um, because of that, our preseason All-America lists have been a pretty good indicator for future first round and, and just future draft results. So there are always a few players who make this list that I'm like, uh, maybe I should have been focusing on this player a little bit more just in terms of draft rankings. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll just open it to you. We can run down the all America teams if you want, Ben, but they're also on the website. If you guys want to look over the entire teams, there's first, second and third team for both high school and college. Uh, and scouts have also voted on best tools in the class as well. And that honestly might be more exciting to a lot of people to see who's the fastest runner, who's the best pure hitter, who's the best defender, who has the best fastball. Those are always just as fun to talk through, but I'll just throw it out to you and you can take this in whatever direction you want to go. I know we've talked about a lot of outfielders today, but um, it's preseason all America week too. So that's fun too. Uh, it stood out to me that Walker Jenkins was not a unanimous pick. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I was like, well, come on. I mean, you know, obviously, uh, well, and even just the, you know, I was gonna say there's some other good outfielders and, you know, Max Clark and Dylan Head being on the first team and then Walter Jenkins obviously made the first team too. So I, I agree with that, but yeah. man, I don't know. We had, so we had six, six unanimous first team players across the high school and the college lists. I'll do college first since we're talking about the high school team and how you're just lambasting the industry here for their miss on Walker Jenkins. But the Well, it's not the industry. It's it's, <laughs> it's whoever and I don't I don't know who, by the way, but just seeing yeah. him not we can't, being unanimous. We can't out who it was. I will say that Walker Jenkins only missed by one vote though. Um so he was very close. Dylan Cruz was a unanimous first teamer on the college side. Chase Dolander, the right hander from Tennessee, who's number two on our draft board. Uh, was unanimous first teamer. And then Paul Skeens uh, was a first teamer on the college team at the utility spot, also out of Louisiana State. So LSU with two unanimous first teamers. And then on the high school side, Blake Mitchell out of Texas was a unanimous first team catcher. 
Max Clark uh, out of Indiana was a unanimous first team outfielder. And then Noble Meyer, uh, the right-hander out of Oregon was a unanimous first team starting pitcher. So I think that in the time that I've done the preseason list, it is always easier to be unanimous at outfield and at pitcher, just because there are more spots. And typically there are a few players who, who have separated themselves in the class. And it's very hard when you have three spots for a first team player to, to not choose a Dylan Cruz or a Max Clark or presumably a Walker Jenkins, but he, he only missed by one. So he was the closest that wasn't. Um, but I also think it's fascinating that Blake Mitchell, his first team catcher, I don't know who the last first team catcher was, but it does seem like this year it's Mitchell and then it's a big gap in the next best high school catcher. It it seems like a relatively down class for catchers overall, um, but especially maybe on the high school side. Like there are a lot of college catchers like a Michael Carrico, like a Luke Schleiger, like a Jack Payton, who it wouldn't surprise me if they pushed up boards with good performance this spring. The high school catching side, I don't know. We, we certainly don't have a year like we had a few years ago where we had Anthony Siegler and Bo Naylor and uh, who was the really defensive-oriented catcher? I'm blanking on his name. Will Banfield. I think they were all three in the same class. Um, you think but so? anyways. I don't know. I, I feel like, I mean, we, you've got Blake Mitchell. You've got... Ralphie Velasquez and maybe some more question marks if he goes to you know first base instead of catcher. But like I said before, I, I, I think I like his bat anywhere he plays. He's just a really, really talented hitter uh, with a, a knack for using the whole field, a lot of barrels in game, and, and I think there's going to be big power in there too. You've got Ryder Helfrich, who I think has a, you know great arm strength and power, and, and I think Campbell Smithwick is a player who I think is probably just underrated because people haven't didn't get a chance to see a ton of him last summer so i feel uh, i mean there's there's just typically aren't that many high school catchers who get drafted really in a given year i mean you if, if you're not yeah going early, i think this year this year seems less top heavy and maybe it's just because the last few years we've been spoiled with good catching classes at the top like let me just run down the last Four, I'll do the last five just because it gets us to that 2018 class that I mentioned. But 2022, we've got Kevin Prada at 11, Daniel Susak at 19. This is okay. where they were drafted. Not I, I, I was talking more just on the high school side. but Gotcha. Okay. Well, we yeah. can go through high school. But let me just see the high schoolers. So, yeah, 2021, we had Harry Ford at 12. 2020, we had Tyler Soderstrom at 26. 2019, we didn't have a high school first-round catcher. And then 2018 we had two with Anthony Siegler and Bo Naylor. So I think you're right. We don't we don't typically have high schoolers going the first round. Maybe I'm being more critical, but it just in terms of, like from my perspective, I'm talking about college and high school. This class feels a little bit down because our top-ranked college catcher is Kyle Teal, and he's right outside of the top 30. Yeah. Um, no, but I but I'll let you expand that. more on, on why you like the high school class. Uh, no, I mean, I think just if you look typically where – teams get their catchers right it is college i mean and that that's that makes sense why it's you know you're, you're talking more about the college catchers because if you just look especially the last few years there's only like i think it's like five or six high school catchers every year who actually sign because it's it's a very risky group overall and generally, if, if those guys aren't getting going in the top few rounds, or they're not getting paid like they're in the top few rounds. They're yeah. just going to go to college and take it from there. 
So you have like 20, 30 something college catchers every year now who are getting, who are getting signs. And on the high school side, you know, a lot of times you can count it on, on one hand or, or you're definitely right. You have six fingers. You can do that. But I'm just looking at our draft database right now and filtering for each year, high school catchers who signed in 2022. Um, there were five high school catchers who signed in 2021 and this is you had to be selected as a high school catcher so i'm sure there are a few random examples of maybe uh, a player who's drafted as like first base or third base who, who could catch too but for the most part if you're a catcher in high school you'll, you'll be selected as a catcher as well um in 2021 there were five who were drafted and signed out of high school in 2020 the shortened five-round draft there were only three um tyler soder summoned drew roma pretty good class for just three um 2019 there were 10 and that, but that and that was in a longer draft yeah too. and so. then it gets it gets wider once we get into the so actually this is like an interesting element that i hadn't it makes all the sense in the world as you're talking about it but i hadn't realized how big of a drop off there are in just the high school demographic of catchers since going from 40 to five and then now 20 rounds yeah i mean the, and the number of college catchers that signed you know or, who are signing now in a 20 round draft it's it's I think it's just offhand. It's probably in the twenties or the thirties. Yeah. I'm, I'm like scrolling each year to see all the, the full list of college players who are signing. Yeah. It's a pretty stark gap. I would imagine this is probably one of the bigger gaps from high school to college and just a quantity of players selected. I mean, this is, this is another example of, of what getting rid of the low minors or, or lowering the amount of teams in the low minors does for, the draft and for player development, you don't have, you don't have the innings to give these players to develop them when they're going to need a lot of time, a lot of instruction on both sides. You have to be an elite, elite high school catcher, I guess, to, to fit in the modern pro baseball world now. So, I mean, what do you think about that, Ben? Is this, is that, is that a problem? Is it just a function of where we're at now? Is it just a function of, a lot of teams also preferring to get their young catching talent from uh, the international market. I mean, what do you think about it? Yeah, no shortage of, of catchers coming from Venezuela right now. Um, I, don't, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily a problem. I mean, if you're a high school catcher, it kind of is because you just have fewer... <laughs> yeah. If you didn't no, really want to go to college, you're like, I'm, I'm ready to start my pro career. Now there's yeah. no opportunities. But it's not like, it's not like you're losing catchers to another sport right like it's not like they're dropping out of baseball altogether they're just going to college instead and they're gonna develop there now if you're a major league club or you're a scout you're probably saying yeah but then they go to college and they don't call their own games there whereas if we could draft them and had easier ability to sign catchers out of high school as soon as we send them to the Florida complex league or the Arizona complex league, like we're teaching them right away how to call their own game, which is what they're not learning a lot of times in college and is a big part of yeah. being a catcher. I really wish colleges would let more catchers call games because it's always a surprise, a delightful surprise to me when I hear about a college prospect who is allowed to call games. Uh, yeah. I don't, I mean, I guess I get why they don't do it because a lot of these college coaches just want to control their program to a very um, intense degree. But at the same time, to your point, it's a, a very important aspect of player development. And I would think, 
I mean, I would think in a lot of cases the catcher would would have a better understanding of how to call a game, considering he's right there in front of the umpire. He's watching how hitters are reacting to pitches. He should know the pitchers better than you would you would think the coach. So I don't know. I wish I wish we saw it more. I wish it wasn't such a a norm for college coaches to call the game from the dugout. Yeah, no, I'd like to see more teaching done in that regard too. But like you said, college coaches have a, a lot of money on the line for, exactly. uh, for themselves. And they, you know, they, like you yeah. said, they want to control it. And the incentives are to win, game. not to not to develop, although developing players can often align with that goal. But ultimately, they're, they're trying to win games. Was there anything else about the All-America teams that jumped out to you? I mean, one for me was seeing Bryce Eldridge make the first team as a position player. I mean, yep. I love him on the mounds, I think he could make, you know, the, the first team pitchers are all, you know, mm-hmm. pretty, pretty stout too. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I could see him making the first team as a, a pitcher, but to see him make it as a hitter definitely jumped out to me that it's major league scouts putting him on that mm-hmm. team as a corner of in, infielder when you have you know, Gavin Grahovic and mm-hmm. Eric Batanti and, and, you know, some other, yeah. you know, pretty good competition for him at that position too. I think, I think in a lot of ways it is a function of the, the corner infield position being significantly weaker than other positions partially. That's not to take all the credit away from Bryce Eldridge, because I do think he is one of the biggest like post summer helium prospects in the class. I mean, we, we pushed him up solidly inside the first round range in the, in the top 25 of the class now. And a lot of that, up arrow movement is because of what he did with the bat with team USA. He was the MVP of the tournament for the gold medal winning 18 U team. He hit three home runs. I think people were really impressed with his hitting ability. They, they always saw the raw power. I mean, that was, that was always there in batting practice. I think we've talked about it before here. Like I, at the beginning of the summer, I thought Bryce Eltridge was a really polished pitcher who also just had some raw power. Um, and now I think of him as, one of the best, probably the best two-way player in the class, not named Paul Skeens. And I'm more, I mean, personally now, I'm more excited about his upside as a hitter than a pitcher, which was not the case at the beginning of the summer. And I've, I've had some conversations with scouts this offseason, just like talking through his profile. And I know there are some scouts who like him better as a pitcher and some scouts who are way more excited about him as a hitter. So I think it's definitely going to be one of those situations where depending on the team that selects him, depending on what Bryce himself wants to do. Like it wouldn't shock me at all. If there was a team that took him and let him try the two way experiment, like we've seen with a few different players. I think is Boba Chandler still doing it uh, in pro ball for the pirates. I think he is right. I believe so. Yeah. So it wouldn't surprise me if, if he was able to take that path. And I mean, I would imagine first base is a pretty good position to do it. You're not, you don't have the, the strain on your arm that you would at any number of other positions. Um, but yeah, cor- corner infield is typically the lightest position on the high school America ballot. And then middle infield is insanely tough to crack any given year. So I think that's part of it too. But he was also a second team preseason American as a pitcher. And I think he was the only player who made it as a hitter and a pitcher this year, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah. I don't see anybody else who would be a, <laughs> a two way guy for, uh, for these purposes. Yeah. The one name that I loved seeing was Derek Curiel being the only underclassman on any of these three teams. And he made the third team. I like that just cause I'm obsessed with Derek Curiel's swing. 
Um, but we typically have a, a few underclass players. I believe Max Clark and Walker Jenkins both made the preseason All-America team as underclassmen a year ago. Um, I could be wrong about Jenkins. I know that Max Clark was on it. I'm trying to double check. Um, yeah, Clark and Walker Jenkins were both underclass players. So it's a good sign for Curiel. I think in general, the industry and, and yourself, Ben, do a really good job of identifying the top players pretty early. Like it seems like it. It seems like those players make themselves apparent early yeah. in the process. No, I think I do a great job too. Yeah, you really do. You really I do. Right. I mean, that's <laughs> like the thing with that too is like it, it's kind of obvious. Like it's the you know as you get deeper down the list, it, it gets a little trickier to evaluate players and and sort them out. But uh, the same is true with the international signings too. Or uh, I, I mean, I the international signs have changed so much now where the window where you're evaluating was so different, but like, you know, I think back to, you know, like debating, you know, like, like Wander Franco being, you know, him and like Daniel Flores, the, you know, unfortunately the late catcher who signed with the Red Sox was like, yeah, it's pretty clear that these two guys were the top two guys in their class. You know, back to 2013, it was like Eloy Jimenez, Glaber Torres, Raphael Devers, like, yeah, that was where, that was our top three that year, and it looks great in hindsight. But you know, I'm not that smart. It's just a matter <laughs> of like knowing what you're looking at, and not just knowing what you're looking at, but obviously a big part of our job is communicating with with scouts throughout the industry or seeing these players in all all different environments. So the really great ones at that age definitely should jump out. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't always work out but it you know it should stand out when you have a player like a Derek Curiel who you know is, is a very good athlete and and makes the game look so so easy uh, just so calm balanced in the box um, you know coming back from you know an, an injury right now so he couldn't play with that 18U USA national team that won the gold cup in, in Mexico in November which is unfortunate uh, but he's I mean he just he glides around in center field, uh, just very smooth, balanced in the box, makes a ton of contact. We're starting to see the, the power trend up some as he continues to to get stronger. So, yeah, I mean, there's a reason he's so high up our, our 2024 rankings. And, um, you know, I, I understand why the scouts put him on there. I, I think the one guy who, you know, if we're talking about an underclass outfielder who I'd I'd put on there myself would be Michael Mullinax, an outfielder from. Do you uh, do you think it's because Curiel has gotten more exposure in national events? Yeah. Oh, I'm sure that's that's. I mean, a, him a playing for that. Orange Lutheran and being at the NHSI like really has put him under the spotlight of of especially national level scouts who aren't really focused on the underclassmen at this point and. And I haven't seen, I think I've seen Michael Molnax maybe once, and I've seen Derek Curiel a number of times, which is, it's not like I'm going out of my way to try and see him. He's just happened to be at a number of events where you get the opportunity to. So certainly the exposure that you get is a factor here. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And, you know, like the scouting directors who are voting on these teams are not really focused on the underclass players unless they're at, you know, an event like East Coast Pro or, or area code games or something like that. But, uh, you know, you talk to scouts in Georgia, <laughs> if there's any uh, questions, they, they all know who 
Michael Mullinax is. He's like I would say, Curiel has a more aesthetically pleasing swing compared to Mullinax, but uh, Mullinax makes a lot of contact too, and I think there's just everything's a little bit louder with him too. The the power, uh, speed, arm strength. Uh, he was also hurt a little bit last year uh, toward the beginning of the summer, so missed some times. So maybe people didn't see him quite as much then, but um, I, I, I love him, man. He's great athlete, plays a premium position, a lot of contact from both sides of the plate, uh, a track record of, of hitting and hitting with power uh, pretty, pretty consistently throughout uh, you know, the high school season in, in Georgia and as an underclassman and and throughout the summer too so um, yeah two of the two of the players i'm definitely the most excited to uh, to see this this coming summer because i think they they both have a case to be uh the not you know not just a an all-american but potentially the number one high school player in in the country for 2024 mm-hmm. i wanted to run through some of the best tools balloting we received i'll, I'll kind of go down the college list um, and then for the high school list, would you want to say who you would have for each category? And then we can say who the scouts picked, Ben. Is that something you might be interested in? That is something. All right. Might so be. let's just run through the college list quickly, because I know that you've seen more of the high school guys. Best, best athlete, Enrique Bradfield. Best peer hitter, Jacob Wilson, which is maybe not a surprise given his peer contact ability um, and how little the guy strikes out. Best power, Dylan Cruz. Fastest runner. Shocker, shocker, Enrique Bradfield. This was a category where we didn't even get three players because everyone just voted for Enrique Bradfield. <laughs> Con- congratulations to Mitch Jeb, who who also got a vote um, in that category. Uh, best defensive infielder, Maui Ahuna, shortstop from Tennessee. Best defensive outfielder, another shocker, Enrique Bradfield. Best infield arm, Yohani Morales at Miami. Best outfield arm, Dylan Cruz, outfitter, LSU. Best catcher arm, Kyle Teal. Best fastball, Chase Dolander at Tennessee. Best fastball movement, also Chase Dolander. Best breaking ball, also Chase Dolander. Best changeup, Rhett Louder at Wake Forest. Best command, Rhett Louder at Wake Forest. Best athlete for a pitcher, Paul Skeens. And closest to the majors, who do you think got the uh, the nominee for this, Ben? Did you already, you might did, already know. Did, did Chase Dolander win he that did. one too? Chase Dolander got that one. Dylan Cruz was second. Shocking. And, and Wyatt Langford was third. All right. The high school will be more fun. The, okay, uh, well, hold on. I, I mean, yeah, what ahead. stood out to me there was that, I mean, other than Chase Dolander looking like he could be the number one pick yeah. in the draft. This I is why be. he's he's the best college pitching prospect since I, I like to be conservative with these because I think it's very easy to get recency bias. But like, mm-hmm. I think he's pretty clearly the best college pitcher to come out since AJ Puck at Florida. I know a lot of people will just skip back and go to Steven Strasburg, but I think it's kind of doing a disservice to how good the industry thought AJ Puck was at, at the same time, but go on. Well, what stood out to me was that you have best pure hitter, Jacob Wilson, and number three for best defensive infielder, Jacob Wilson. So you have... Oh, is this where you you stump for your guy, Jacob Wilson, here? I'm just saying you have somebody who <laughs> the industry is saying is one of the best defensive shortstops in the country and is also the best pure hitter in the country. And we saw some of that power last summer. I mean, he, he's pretty exciting to me. Do you know what, Ben? 
no no one no one told me to put Jacob Wilson over Jacob Gonzalez. <laughs> but I do I do agree. He's he's very exciting. I mean, he has a lot of skills that you just can't teach. Um and I'm trying to look through here. Jacob Jacob Gonzalez did not give us for best power. I was trying to see if he got any. I know I knew Jacob Wilson didn't, but um I, I think I was also a little surprised Jacob Gonzalez was third in best pure hitter, just considering the season he had in 2022. It was not the best in terms of, of average. He got on base a ton and he has it for power. But I expected honestly someone like a Dylan Cruz or White Langford to get on this list, and they were both four and five. Hmm. Yeah. No, I mean I could yeah, I could see that. I mean there is yeah. some not like a scary amount or anything, but swing and miss with uh, Dylan Cruz. If you if you're mm-hmm. looking for more of the pure sure. pure contact type yeah. skills, no, that don't make sense. Um, the one other interesting thing too is Hurston Waldrip. I put him. I mean, he. I didn't put him. He finished second, um, but his is weird because some people voted for his slider, some people voted for his curveball. I honestly am not positive if he throws both a slider and curveball or the pitch just varies. And it's that sort of power breaking ball that some scouts I can see calling it a curve and some scouts I can see calling it a slider. But I need to find out if like he does throw two distinct pitches or if he just manipulates one and has different shapes. Because those can all always be a little bit tricky. But regardless, Erson Waldrop can really spin the ball. And it was not surprising to see him there. Um, so that was another interesting one on the college side. The one other one I wanted to mention was best defensive infielder, Trey Morgan, checking in at the number two spot as a first baseman. I mean, again, we've talked about his unique profile. It's mostly shortstops who are making the best defensive infielder uh, list here, but he checks in right after Mal Yahuna above a Jacob Wilson as best defensive infielder. And he didn't, I don't think he got any votes for best pure hitter or best power. So it's just a really backwards first base profile for Trey Morgan. Um, and also Trey Morgan versus Nolan Shanuel at Florida Atlantic, probably the tightest um, position battle on the college side for first team. They were, they were very close. I think one team was the separator here. Um, Trey Morgan, when I was just kind of doing the balloting as, as votes came in, Trey Morgan was first team. And then the last team um, flipped it to Nolan Shanuel. And he has the much more typical first base profile. So that wasn't shocking, but I think it is interesting to compare and contrast those two as the season goes on. Um, but let's go to the high school side and uh, see how your your thoughts on categories aligns or disagrees with the industry. Best athlete, Ben, who are you taking? I mean... This is hitters, by the way. So we'll have a separate it. pitchers category. Probably Deuce Robinson, right? <laughs> the guy could play yeah. in the NFL. Yep. The industry uh, put Deuce second, and they put Max Clark number one with Kendall Clark George with Kendall George number three. So congratulations, Ben. You are in alignment with the industry. Best pure hitter. Pure hit? Pure hit. I'd, yep. I'd go either Max Clark or Kevin McGonigal. All right, you gotta line them up because they're both on here. But I want to see if you if you do the same order. I I, I would still go Max ahead okay. of McGonagall, but I'm sure people have McGonagall. Well, I shouldn't say I'm sure, but I would suspect just given some of the summer performance that mm-hmm. from last summer that they would have. Who do you have third? Just see if you can go three for three here. Third for pure hit. Uh. 
Aiden Miller, maybe. You like, got it. Three yeah. for three, Ben. You know, well, at least, yeah. at least I compared like, to the industry. The industry went Kevin McGonagall yeah. one, Max Clark two, Aiden Miller three. Yeah. I would throw like a Colt Emerson in there too. I think that's for like a, good a very name. hitterish guy. Ralphie Velasquez, also very mm-hmm. hitterish. Um, I know Antonio Anderson gets more of like a, a split camp, but um, I like what I've, I've seen from his, his switch hitting ability. Very young for the class too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously Walker Jenkins too, but, yep. um, everyone you mentioned, um, mostly got votes. Trent Caraway was another guy who got votes for best pure hitter, um, best power. And this one is tricky because so, I think some teams interpret it. We leave it open. You can do best game power or you can interpret it as best raw power. Um, maybe, maybe that's an area that we should clarify in the future. I'm not sure. I kind of like just leaving, leaving it vague and seeing what we get. Um, but this one can be interpreted in multiple ways. Yeah, that one you got to get Walker Jenkins on the list for sure. For raw power, let's see, could go. You go Daniel Cuvee at uh, Florida. You go maybe Arjun Nimala, Nimala, mm-hmm. uh, shortstop. He's got some like kind of stunning power. I mean, he's yeah. starting to fill out, but like even when he was a really like thin, wiry high waist like alfonso soriano looking <laughs> body could really yeah could really hammer a baseball um yeah i'd put those guys up there bryce eldridge too, yep. is once again ben you know this high school class um the industry went walker jenkins one daniel cuvee two and bryce eldridge three F- fastest runner kendall george he was number one <laughs> any other ones uh probably some like 80 runner i can't think of but we've talked about both of these already on today's podcast two or two and three well, and i guess dylan head and and max clark yep one two three uh best defensive infielder best defensive infielder i know people really like chalowski he's Rob number Chalowski. one okay uh, best you'll definitely get one of the next two and i think you'll miss who the industry has number two best defensive infielder uh, i don't think i don't think they would have put jaron purify there nope he's got i like him defensively uh, the other oh dylan cup uh, yes this, this is the one i thought you were gonna get he, he was number three i think yeah. two is sneaky i don't know that you'll get number two but we'll let you try it if you want uh who who we got there adrian santana out of Doral yeah. academy yeah, from Florida. Yep. Good player. All right, best defensive outfielder. Defensive outfielder. I'll go Max Clark. He was number one. I'll go Kendall George. He was number three. Dylan Head. He was number two. And, oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, are you sure you're not just looking at the list, Ben? Those guys, I mean, it's like guys we were just talking about. Yeah, um, for, but normally um, best speed. best. Yeah, guy. and I'm sure they're picking, like, there's some guy like, like there's a kid Darnell Parker mm-hmm. at IMG Academy who's like a phenomenal defensive shortstop who I imagine makes it to to school. Mm-hmm. So like he, you know, but I imagine just on on pure defensive ability, I I take him right up there with Dylan yeah. Cup and Rock Chalowski, But I imagine he's not going to get the mm-hmm. the votes just from the the scouting directors. Um, best infield arm. Infield. Ooh, infield arm. 
In the field are. Uh, maybe Roman Martin. Is he up there? I believe he got votes, but he was not top three. Okay. Aiden Miller. Aiden Miller is number one. Uh, would, would they have put Eric Batanti on there? They did put Eric Batanti. Eric okay. Batanti was number two. And then who would be like MJ Sayo has a pretty big arm, but from a scouting director perspective, he's probably not. On there. Oh, what about TJ Pompey from Texas? Uh, no, not him. Okay, I could put him in the best defensive infielder. Yeah, so I think this is a really strong cool. crop of defensive infielders on the high school side. Yeah. The last one was Rock Chalowski. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. I like. I mean, I, I like Rock Chalowski. <laughs> I don't consider him like a strong arm. Yeah, like like a big big arm shortstop. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. he will, or, or I think he has the upside to be a a first round pick because he has phenomenal hand eye coordination, makes a ton of contact, really good play coverage, and I think he's gonna stick at shortstop. Yeah, but I just I wouldn't have thought he would be yeah. best pure pure arm. Best a great great athlete too. Yeah, absolutely. Best outfield arm, Max Clark. He's number he's one. Be. Okay. Best outfield arm. Best outfield arm. Walker Jenkins can throw too. He's number two. Okay. You. This one is tricky because last year, year, year before, you were at PG National and you weren't at PG National in twenty two. If you were there, I think you would get this one. I'm not sure since you weren't at PG National this past year. This is a player who's lower down our rankings. But is ranked uh, Michael Graziano or nope? I'm trying to think of like a no, I don't know. Alfonso Rosario. Oh yeah, who has an absolute cannon? Big big tools. Yeah, uh, best catcher arm. Blake Mitchell, Ryder Helfrick. Blake Mitchell's one. Ryder is not here. Ryder is not on there. Uh, I believe again. I believe he got votes. Yeah, he got votes, but is not top three. There are only four that got votes, so he was the only person who got votes who didn't actually make the top three. Ralphie Velasquez does have a good arm. He does. He did not get a vote. Oh, okay. But uh, I don't know if I'd go like best arm, like just like raw arm strength, but in terms of the pop times he can produce, Colton Wombles out of uh, Alabama? Nope, not here. No? Okay. You got to tell me the next two then. Zion Rose was two, and then Colin Barksey was three. Zion Rose out of Florida by way of um, Illinois, I believe, and then Colin Barksey yeah. in Illinois. All right, we're on to the pitchers. Best fastball? Travis Sakura. He's number one. Noble Meyer. Not here. Noble Meyer throwing like 96, 99. Not here. <laughs> Not there? Okay. Nope. All right, that doesn't cut it anymore, I guess. <laughs> uh, Charlie Soto. He's number Indiana three. From Florida. Yeah, he'll he's be, number three. Uh, he'll be hitting 100 miles an hour soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, best fastball. Uh, this is not a profile that's typically here for the high school best fastball, I would say. So, like... Uh, Hmm. Like a Cameron Johnson? No. 
But you're on the right path with that guess. Oh, the lefty, like Thomas White? Yep, Thomas White, number okay. two. He's good. All right, best fastball like... movement. Fastball movement. Oh, We're getting granular. Uh, Hackman, Adam Hackman. He's number two. Out of Missouri. He's one. If they put Thomas White there, he's probably another one. He's number one. And then Wes Mendez. Lefty no. committed to Vanderbilt. Nope, not Mendez. Or actually, I think he, he's not Vanderbilt anymore. Is he? I'm not sure. But number three is Charlie Soto. Yeah. So he's on there for... Okay. So Thomas White and Charlie Soto, both with pretty elite fastballs. Top three in both these categories. Um, best breaking ball. Number three here surprised me a lot. The first two make all the sense in the world. Sounds like a clickbait headline. Number three <laughs> will shock you. You'll you'll be stunned to see who ranks number three. All right. Well, this has got they got to get Noble Meyer here. Yes, ball, Noble right? Meyer number one for breaking ball. Overwhelming right. winner. All right. Good. Good. Uh, Josh Noth. Nope. Out of New York. He does okay. spin it well though. He, he he got he got votes. Yeah, he should. <laughs> yeah, he spins it. Uh, breaking ball. Who's got like a? Uh, I would say you're already overthinking it. <laughs> am I? Yeah, probably. I don't know. I don't know who. There's no like. I think we had more massive spin Cam, guys a year Cam ago. Cam Johnson. No, Cam. Cam didn't really get much love in these voting. I would say. Oh, all right. Um, uh, so number two, you want me to tell you? Yeah, yeah, give it to me. Number two, Charlie Soto, and then number three, Travis Sakura. Travis yeah. Sakura really surprised me. Charlie Soto surprised me because I would have him for best changeup. I think it's changeup over breaking ball for him. Best changeup is next. So, where are you going? Best changeup? Let's say Charlie Soto. Charlie Soto is number one, and best changeup. Christian Rodriguez. No. Right-hander out of Florida? Nope. No? He got votes, not top three. Uh, oh, well, I'm going to... Well, I'll, I'll wait to see who, who got <laughs> ahead of him, but that's a, he's got a really good changeup. Yeah. Um, Ty Pete? No. Come on. <laughs> not here. Uh, all right. We may we may have to disagree on these ones. Unless <laughs> oh, Derek is Derek Schaefer on nope. there out of Arizona. Nope. nope. You keep thinking of guys that you're like definitely gotta be. <sighs> All right. Who's who 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 beat those guys? And... <laughs> okay, Xander Muth, number two. And then Noble Meyer, number three. Yeah. Ben's out. Uh, Ben's out on that one. All right, I we mean, only have a couple more categories. I do love Noble Meyer, but just just for change up, man. Yeah. That's, that's I don't know. Um, and, and and he should, and he wasn't in fastball either. That's a tough one. Yeah, best command. Ooh, best command. You know who is not going to get any votes on this because he just wasn't pitching this past summer. But Cade Anderson, out of mm-hmm. out of Louisiana, lefty. Um, man, he can really, really good feel for dot it up, pitching. Yeah, mixing, matching. Like I, I think if. I think if you saw him, you would. He's like a lefty you would really like. Yeah, there there is one lefty on here that that sounds similar. I would say two of these players definitely come across as like pitchability high school players, and then there's another one who just really good pitching prospect. 
Well, that's got to be Noble Meyer then. Yes, he's number one. Yeah, yeah, I love Noble Meyer. Yeah. Then you got two more that are more like classic command-oriented high school pitchers. Command. Both are on our top two hundred. I mean, all all the guys we've talked about are really on our top two hundred for the most part. Not like Hunter Dietz. Nope. No. There were a number of pitchers who got votes for this too. So Hunter is one. He could have easily been here. Yeah. I don't know. Like Justin Laguernick, lefty out of New York. Who's like, no. No. Too tall. Mm. Too tall. Hmm. Run through a list of guys who definitely would not be <laughs> <laughs> in that category. Um, who who you got? Number two is Jake Brown, and number three is Parker Detmers. Parker Detmers, yeah, yeah, Reed's mm -hmm. Reed Detmers' little brother can yep. spin it, good curveball. I like him. Yeah, I think both. I like both these these players. It wouldn't shock me if they both got to college and then were studs. Um, best athlete. We got two more to get through. Ho hopefully, you guys are playing along as we go. That probably makes it better, more entertaining. Did but we uh, best, best, do athlete. best athlete. Best athlete for pitchers specifically. Uh, first one is bet first for position players. Best athlete pitchers. Oh, Bryce Eldridge. He was number one. The second one should be obvious too. Noble Meyer. He's three, so maybe not. But I, I think okay. there's one other one that's still pretty ob not obvious, but it, it won't surprise you when when you hear who it is. Just given his background. His background. Given his history of pitching, how long he's been doing it. Uh, trying to think of like a two-way guy. Can't be Ty Pete, apparently. Cause... No, no. <laughs> Ty Pete got shut out here. I mean, that's... He did get a vote. He did get votes for this one. He did? All right. Yes. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you some players who got votes who are not the answer here. Ty Pete um, is a better athlete than whoever you're going to... Ty Pete, Thomas White, Blake Mitchell, Braden Sharp, Cal Randall, Mackay Grant all got votes but didn't make the top three. All right. I don't know. <laughs> no guesses? Ty, Ty Pete is the best athlete. Of no guesses Char here? Charlie Soto used to play a little shortstop. Yes, it's Charlie Soto. And and Charlie Soto okay. is just all over these. And he's another guy who is an up arrow. Like, clearly the voting tells me why you moved up on our board. Like, the industry loves him in every category. He should be. I don't know if yeah. I'm like quite as on his breaking ball. It was really good it, at East Coast Pro. Was it? I mean, yeah. his changeup is just so good. Yeah, his and, East Coast uh, Pro throws, showing was electric. Yeah, and he throws 98, and he's like basically could be a 2024 if yeah, just based on how young he is. Yeah, if he goes in the first, I won't be shocked at all. Um, and then last category, closest to the majors. Clark. He's number Jen two. Jenkins. No Jenkins. No Jenkins. No Jenkins. Closest to the majors? He got votes. He got votes, but not top three. I mean, just think of the last category for college. That's how the, the industry typically the, votes for it. Whoever the Phillies draft. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hey, this this player would align with, with who they draft. Uh, okay, Noble Meyer. He's number one. Okay. And number three. Uh, number three McGonagall? is a little bit surprising to me because of because of how he performed in the summer. Oh. I was going to say Kevin McGonagall. No, Kevin McGonagall got votes, not top three. Because of how Bryce Eldridge is another one who got votes, but was not top three. And Bryce Eldridge got votes as a hitter, specifically. So this was somebody who struggled a little bit, or like I wouldn't say struggled, but it wasn't as good as maybe he's been previously. He's t he's the stuff mm -hmm. is too good for him to really struggle that much. I would say. Okay, there's a little hint. Yeah. <laughs> 
Thomas White. Thomas White. Thomas White's number three. Ben, I think you get a. I think you get an eighty grade for this. I mean, you were on it the whole time. I think, yeah. I, I think I like some of my picks better too. <laughs> you definitely were not a fan of the changeup category, and you're not a fan of Ty Pete getting shut out. That's well. I think if you're, I mean, it like yeah, like going back to Darnell, like the Darnell Parker example, where it's like an elite defensive shortstop who's you know probably making it to campus. You know, although like I mean, Ty Pete and Christian Rodriguez, I think are both you know, legitimate prospects who very well could sign both two-way guys. I think with, you know, the case with, with Rodriguez, more of a, you know, more of a pitcher at the professional level. Um, I could definitely see him getting to campus potentially. I think that'd be a great get for Florida. And then Ty Pete is just like a super bouncy athlete with a good fastball, really good changeup, still developing that breaking ball. And a you know pretty tight swing from the left side, and and obviously a big arm from from the left side of the infield too. So, but I could see where like he might not be maybe top of mind for mm-hmm. scouting directors who are filling this out, or maybe yeah. they just. Disagree I think it's definitely a definitely a case where in best tools. I mean, even the way we do best tools um, for our draft preview, we cut it off at a certain level. Um, I think last year, maybe we did like best tools of the top 200, um, because I think there always are going to be players who are non prospects who you could probably find that are better runners. Like there are a bunch of 80 grade or 70 grade runners who maybe are not high profile prospects. So trying to, at least in terms of, um, the draft preview for the magazine, trying to balance, um, presenting the best tools of the class of, of players who are going to be drafted, um, versus like these are the best individual tools in the country regardless i think it's easier to have the former be more accurate and maybe even more useful um, but there certainly are players who maybe don't get the recognition they deserve in individual tools voting and awards and things like that who who don't simply because they're they're not the same quality of prospect as another player who's similar or, or maybe worse in a category that that happens every year but um Cool. That was fun, Ben. Um, what else you want to talk about today? What else? I liked uh, I liked your tweet you had about stats. Oh, that you wanted to eliminate. From oh, did you? Yeah, history. I think that the, was an interesting I, one. Well, I don't know if people liked that tweet. It certainly got a lot of traction. <laughs> Jeff actually quote tweeted it and said, "I would like to get rid of this tweet," um, which is pretty offensive, Jeff. But um, no, I I don't know. We were talking well, about something in the in Slack that made me think, like, I think we talk about a lot, like what's your favorite statistic? If you could only use one statistic, what would you use? And I was like, oh, what's the inverse of this? What, what stats do people hate? And I think part of me died a little bit after I tweeted this out because so many people responded with war <laughs> and I was just a little, I probably should have been less surprised than I was, but a lot of people really hate war. Um, for me, and I think people listening to this, I, I think I've made it clear on this podcast, I hate saves and pitcher win, wins and losses. So it would be a coin flip for me between either two of those stats. And my tweet to clarify was, if you could eliminate one baseball stat, which are you getting rid of? Wow, I had a typo in the tweet too. Dang, that's embarrassing. Where's the edit button? Um 
Yeah, but for me, saves and, and pitcher win loss records are almost like don't tell you anything and, and maybe paint inaccuracies about a player. I mean, saves have adversely affected how managers managers use relievers. I think we're probably past that for the most part. Teams are much smarter about how they operate in the bullpens now, but for a long time that wasn't the case. And also having done more fantasy drafts and mock drafts lately, having to chase saves in a fantasy game is just the dumbest thing to me. I hate it. it it's the most arbitrary. It's You're not even trying to find players who are good at anything. It's like players who are in a situation where they are clearly in this defined role. I hate them. I just hate saves. And I, I never use, if you look at, if you look at the way I write about players, I never use saves and I never use pitcher wins and losses in, in like just giving, I would much rather just give you the ERA, their innings, strikeouts and walks. I, I completely avoid, they don't tell you anything. They don't tell you anything. That's what I have. Yeah. I mean, I'm not like an elitist the way you are about it, but um, <laughs> no, I mean, I think those are probably, th- those are probably the two most common answers you got, right? Probably well, I sure. think a lot of people also interpreted it as, which would you rather get rid of saves or pitcher wins and losses? So I think that's why, but it would be those two and then war (laughs) would be the most common, the most common stats. I think I'll give you two answers that you probably didn't get. One would be uh, for pitchers opponents batting average. Really? What are you getting from opponents batting average? (laughs) That you're not getting <laughs> from strikeout rate and batting average on balls in play. Okay, I'm, hang on. I'm trying to process the BABIP versus the average here. You, so you're you're you're, you're using getting, bat. Wait, you're using BABIP for pitchers regularly? No, I, I'm not I don't using think I've ever done that. Well, not not to. No, 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 I'm not saying that. I'm saying batting batting average against. I mean, you're 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 already looking at strikeout rate for pitchers, right? Yeah, yeah. So all you're doing then is adding in batting average on balls in play. Okay. So so I, I really have no it doesn't add any value to me <laughs> to know what the opponent's batting average is for a pitcher. I'd much rather just look at strikeout rate. And then mm-hmm. if you're if you are looking at at batting average on balls in play for yeah. a pitcher, you can look at that. But t- telling me in a the pitcher's opposing opponent's batting mm-hmm. average against doesn't add any yeah. value for me whatsoever. Okay. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. So so if you could get rid of one stat, that's what you're getting rid of? Opposing batting average allowed? Again, I'm, that's well, a very I'm not, niche. I'm not, that's a very getting, niche I'm not getting rid of no, any you have stats. To. You have to. You have to. This is the game. Not, Someone I'm replied not... and said, I wouldn't want to get rid of any. I said, this is not the game. <laughs> and you're playing that game right now, Ben. You have to pick one. The... Someone said hold is a stat that is also never used and bad so you'd not be affecting too much history if you used holds here mine is more just from i guess an analytical perspective where it's like again like pitcher win like really i mean i guess some people use them but i don't know a lot of people use pitcher wins ben let me tell you it's it's like a style for people to cite win loss comma era for many people still and i hate it yeah i don't i yeah it just is it's it's never been a thing for me, not in like 20 years at least, but, but I, you know, opponents batting average to me is one where it's like, I, I see people using it yeah, and I, you know, I think we have it in the book, which is again, fine. Like if, you know, people want to use whatever stats they want to look at, that's, that's fine. And, you know, we're also, a, you know, we produce a consumer 
product. So if people are interested in, in that, then that's fine. Um, but for me, just as far as evaluating players, I would, I would not use that one. And then the other one I see, I guarantee this was not in your responses. When people will, or a writer will in earnest use a team's record with or without a player as a mm. judgment on that the value, value of the player, yeah. which is just completely, <laughs> complete enumerate nonsense. <laughs> like there, there are so many other. Oh, Matt, Eddie is going to love you for using the word enumerate, by the way. So it's, it, I mean, it's one thing if you're just saying, oh, like, hey, the, you know, the Angels didn't have Mike Trout for a month and here's their record without him was actually bet like you know you're just 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 to use like oh like like look how much random yeah. variation yeah bench him when he comes back in yeah. in baseball you know if, if you're using it to say you know this team played at a pace of you know uh, uh, that had you know a 20 greater win pace with this player than without him like yeah no, come on like this is not a 20 win player come on <laughs> These are good. I'm going to read through some of the funnier ones that I got, the, some of the funnier responses, because there were some wild ones. Um, let's see. Someone said errors. They're too arbitrary. I, I don't, I mean, I don't use, I don't think errors are, are very useful, but imagine if we didn't have errors, like if you couldn't credit someone for making a mistake. I'd like I think to they're, see, yeah, you know, if a shortstop played, yeah. you know, in a, a minor league game, like, you know, hmm. played a hundred games and he made 70 errors. I don't know. I think that's holds some value. Someone said I mean, holds are pretty stupid in my opinion. Yeah. But who uses those? Exactly. I don't think they're, they're used too much. Some, someone said I get rid of reliever ERA and I was interested of the distinction between relievers versus starting pitchers. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, cause it's a lot of inherited and yeah, but you don't get credited cleaved. with inherited runners in your well, ERA. Yeah, I mean, well, I think that's the probably his there. The oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Point. He should. You're saying the reliever should get credited with the runner on third who they inherited scoring. Not that's necessarily, but just you, you shouldn't you shouldn't judge a reliever by his yeah. ERA given all of the issues. Um, someone said RBIs. If I can't say wins, which I think is good, uh, like I wouldn't a, get rid of them. But I think they're. I think like batting average, RBIs are imp improperly. Like people put way too much emphasis on what they mean. It's yeah, more yeah. about are you playing on a good team than are you like some massively clutch hitter who excels when runners are in scoring position. I think it's like the pitcher wins thing. Like we yeah. mostly moved on from that like 15, 20 years ago. One person said all of them. Gut feel is all that matters. <laughs> you dumb spreadsheet nerds. <laughs> was that Josh? No, uh, I won't say who it was. It was just a random person on Twitter, but I think that was a good one. Um, someone said Aaron judge backwards K's on pitches out of the zone. <laughs> That's a funny one. Uh, someone said pitcher F war. Many people also said pitcher B war. So I think the, uh, the battle between baseball reference war or ERA or, or runs allowed base war and, and fifth base war is still ongoing. Um, see if there's any other funny ones. JJ said sprint speed. Is that right? No. Uh, someone <laughs> someone said sprint speed for JJ, but I think JJ then clarified in a multi-part eight eight tweet thread about the value <laughs> and utility of sprint speed. Um, so, someone said team wins and losses. That way, I don't have to be reminded in June that the Pirates are out of the playoff picture. 
<laughs> that was a good one. I think someone, I, I don't have this one right in front of me, but I distinctly remember someone saying wins and losses generally. Why can't we all just have fun? Um, okay. Let me see if there are any other good ones here. Maybe the minor leagues. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, most people uh, most people were either on pitcher wins and losses, saves, or war. I, I think Matt Eddy had a good one, and his was OPS, better known as Ops. Um, and he was basically saying that the math is clumsy. You're adding two numbers that have different denominators and are not scaled properly and weighted properly. And he, he basically said you'd be much better off using weighted on base average. I think the best argument to get rid of OPS is so that you stop calling it ops. Mm, no, I got to keep the BA tradition of calling it ops alive and well. It is. I mean, he's, he's right in terms of the mm-hmm. technical calculation of it. But yeah. as far as a quick, quick and dirty shorthand for players' productivity, it's still pretty useful. Yeah. Um, K per nine and walks per nine was also a good one. I think most people just generally think you're you're better off using strikeout percentage and walk percentage, which I've been an advocate for recently. I try to always use. I know when I, it, for a lot of reasons, I think K per nine is always displayed on dashboards of stat sites more frequently. I think that's true of of BRF of Fangraphs of our site. I wish we would all just go to strikeout percentage because it's much more useful. It's it's much more specific and accurate if you're dividing strikeouts by batter's face rather than strikeouts per inning. The, I mean, the innings vary significantly. If you strike out, if you strike out three batters and you've only faced three batters, that's significantly different than striking out three batters in one inning. But you also gave up five hits. Um, so it is. But I think the I mean the correlation between strikeouts per nine and strikeout mm-hmm. rate is so high that it doesn't bother me. And you know, like when a pitcher yeah. is walking but, a ton of guys, that's going to play a factor. In, true. In I think, I think the reasons they're still here is it's much easier to look at K per nine and tell what's good versus what's bad versus strikeout percentage. You have to, you would have to look at those numbers a lot to kind of acclimate to the scale and see what's good versus mm-hmm. what's not. I think that the percentage numbers are more foreign than if you see a K per nine um, significantly over over nine, for instance. You know that's probably pretty good, and if it's if it's under nine, you know that's probably not that great. I think that's probably the the main utility is you can just look at it and very quickly tell good or bad. Um, yeah, I think those are the those are the best ones here. I'm not seeing any. Someone said slugging, which I don't I don't truly understand. Um, someone said hits. So we we've got a lot of wild. Catcher winning percentage is that is that a stat people use? Catcher winning, I, I don't even. <laughs> I, I know that people use like team ERA, like based on who's catching, to see if there's notable notable difference there. But I, I don't know that I've heard of anyone using catcher winning percentage. Sort of sounds like that the record with or without a player almost. Yeah, so I yeah, think it does. First, I'd have to learn the stat, and then I'd probably get on board with. <laughs> All right, that that's it for the uh, the tweet. I, ben, I think you need to carry a little bit more weight in in tweets that you make that we talk about on the show. Why is it always on mine? Well, your yours yours just go more viral. I don't I don't grade out the uh, fast food chains on the twenty eighty scale, so I think that hurts yeah. hurts my reach. It's tough. It's tough. You need to get a little bit more out there with your tweets. Stop, stop tweeting just um, valuable information to people and start getting a little wacky. <clears throat> Anything else in the in the Twitter sphere that you want to talk about today? In the Twitter sphere, mm. Alec Manoa news, maybe. Oh yeah, yeah. Did you see that? Uh, like that? There was like a segment, I guess, 
So I think MLB Network is doing their... Uh, they rank players at each position. Mm-hmm. So there was an analyst who didn't have Alec Manoa on his top. I don't know how many. Uh, with, I think they're doing top 10 for each position. Top 10. Yeah. So, yeah. So he said, and his response for not including Alec Manoa was, Alec Manoa, I love you, Alec. Just show me you're willing to put in a little more time in the gym and that you're going to be there consistently for a little bit longer. I still love you. So like, <laughs> you know, in 10 seconds, he said, I love you twice. Um, <laughs> not like, anyway, I don't really care about any sort of like interpersonal conflict it created between them or drama that it caused on Twitter. Mm-hmm. But it, it actually was interesting to me more just in terms of like, like the implication, I think, is that the knock on Manoa is just that he's so big that that should be a, a downgrade against him. That he's just so yeah. heavy. But I, I don't know. I, uh, to me, that doesn't really matter for a pitcher so much. And, and I think there's, there's advantages to just being a bigger human being, <laughs> especially yeah. for, for pitchers, I mean, look for you know a shortstop or you know a center fielder where it's really speed based. Like, yeah, you've you've got to be in in really good shape. Um, or not, like even that phrase, like in good shape, is is not quite right. Like in yeah, I think I think people probably put too much emphasis on physique, and and it's probably less so in baseball than other sports because I, I think in baseball you do have a much wider range of body types that can have success and i think to your point like i don't get overly worked up about alec manoa's size because i mean what what does his size prohibit him from doing well that you need him to do well i think as long as you can perform the functions um that your role requires and you can do that consistently and over the course of a long season I think you're fine. I, I think it is valid to critique um, durability or size if it, it leads to questions of of injuries or holding up over a long season. Like you might want your catchers to get a little stronger and more physical because it is such a draining position. Um, you're going to lose a lot of weight throughout the season, and you want to you want them just to hold up. So they need some some floor or some threshold of physicality or strength and endurance. And there are a lot of different body types that can do that depending on the person I would imagine. Um, so yeah, I don't, I, I mean, CC Sabathia was very notorious for being better when he was bigger versus trying to cut down weight. Mm-hmm. He lost a lot of stuff. Did he lose durability when he got thinner? But I remember that being like, people were always knocking on C maybe they weren't, I don't remember exactly what the criticism was or, or whether it was just CC tried to get in better shape because he thought it would help him and it actually didn't. He's just the most like famous example of that. Um, but yeah, I, I think in general, as, as long as you can do what you need to do on on the mound in a pitcher's example, as long as you can repeat, as, as long as you can throw your stuff, throw for strikes, and ideally pitch throughout a, a full regular season and handle the the workload for a pitcher. I don't I don't know why you would need to be overly critical, but I also think in this specific example, it, it seemed honestly like 
the analyst was just finding an area of like, oh, this is one area he could improve maybe. I don't know. But I mean, you know, it's like the phrase mass equals gas, right? I mean, I, like you said, in Sabathia's case, I, I would be, it would be a red flag to me if a pitcher suddenly lost a lot of weight. I mean, we don't, you know, this is a performance athlete. These are not, you know, these are pitchers. They don't need to look like bodybuilders, right? They don't need to have a, a low body fat percentage. Yeah. And if anything, you, you probably want to lean toward the side of just having more, more mass. There's, you know, there's yeah. obviously there's a point of diminishing returns, right? Mm -hmm. But having, you know, there's, like you said, CC, Sabathia, um, you know, there's just, there's other, obviously like Bartolo Colon as well. Like there's, there's, there's a lot of examples of guys who are, you know, just bigger, bigger dudes and mm -hmm. have success that way. And it helps, you know, helps them keep on more, more size, more strength throughout the, you know, throughout the season. Uh, whereas, you know, on the other end, you have like, you know, really skin, like skinny, thin bone pitchers. It, you know, it's, it's different, obviously, like depending on what age you are, because if you're looking at a, you know, pretty slender 17 year old pitcher, and you're trying to project him going forward. Yeah, like that can be a good thing at times because you can project him gaining more weight and being able to throw harder once he fills out, adds strength, and long term, you should see more more velocity, all things being equal. If, if you have a you know an equivalent pitcher who's you know six three 175 pounds versus, you know, um, let's say an identical pitcher who's already 6'3", 225. There's just less room for, for strength projection there. So it's almost like the, it's not really an issue for for me at all. Yeah, and Manoa was also, I mean, one of the more durable pitchers in baseball last year. He was ninth in innings pitched at 196.2 uh, the year before in 2021 between the minors and the majors he threw around 130 innings. So I, I don't really have any issues with Manoa specifically, but it's interesting that Manoa was the player who was brought up because he, he's actually a player who I've had some conversations with scouts about that, that I wanted to mention. And it's just like being a stiff mover versus being a like very flexible. I think, in the same way that we're talking about body types and, and maybe some negative connotations that bigger body types can have unnecessarily. I think I'm still learning about a lot of this, but I think it's fascinating in the past. If, if you told me someone was a stiff mover, I would have definitely taken that in a negative connotation and that would have been a bad thing. But, but it's interesting to think through some successful big league players who, who are stiff movers and it's a benefit that they are. Um, Manoa was cited as a pitcher who's a stiff mover um, and Mike Trout actually was cited as an example of a hitter who's a stiff mover. And it's it's really a fascinating conversation because I think on the pitching side, <clears throat> it can maybe be negative if you're like a hyper mobile pitcher because it is a lot easier for mechanics to get out of sync. And if you're a pitcher like Manoa, and I even thinking back to his pre-draft time, there are questions about, oh, is he a starter? Or is he a reliever? He, he uses two pitches. He's going to throw enough strikes. The body he has body questions because he's so big right now. But I think Manoa has shown that 
The physicality has not been an issue. He's a stiff mover who repeats his mechanics well, and he's thrown a lot of strikes because of that. And I think it's it's just interesting to think through mobility and how, like if you look at Trout's swing, it's not a long swing at all. It's very compact and it's tight. And I, I ask scouts about this who know way more than I do, and, and I'm still trying to learn more about it, but thinking about how you can have more efficient mechanics with more power if you have stiffer movements versus if you're very loose, it can be easier for your mechanics to get out of sync and for you to maybe not transfer as much power through those movements is just utterly fascinating to me. And maybe um, you, you can think that maybe a player who is a stiff mover and has a lot of force like Trout and like Manoa have, like powerful stiff movers who are strong athletes, maybe that's why guys are, are able to be so consistent because their mechanics and the way their body moves is it's just very consistent and it's hard for it to get off track where maybe there are some other guys like, I don't really know, like a, an O'Neill Cruz would, would maybe be an example of someone who's more hypermobile or, or more towards the mobile side of the spectrum who has a lot of things that he's going to have to control in space in terms of how his body moves. But thinking about mobility is super fascinating to me. And there's this spectrum of of movers that I think you can succeed through all these different kinds. But stopping myself from thinking of a, a stip a stiff moving athlete as being necessarily bad was something that I, I learned recently that I think is really useful moving forward and just thinking through players. Any thoughts on any of that, Ben? Yeah. I, I don't really think of trout specifically as a stiff mover. I mean, I think he's just a big dude and that just, a. I mean, he's a power mover. Like he's a power runner yeah in the outfield like he's not like going back to enrique bradfield who just sort of floats around mm. in the outfield and glides around out yeah. there whereas trout looks just like a power running back mm-hmm. <laughs> running around out there and then his swing yeah yeah the I, mechanics I, of his swing is really where this conversation was brought up yeah i see like i just see him as having a tight mm-hmm. compact and like pretty efficient and yeah. An adjustable swing. Whereas when I think of a a stiff swing, I think of like a, a stiff path through yeah. the zone, like a grooved swing through the I zone. Think... And if there's a breaking ball coming, then you just have <clears throat> no chance to to adjust to it. Yeah, I, I previously thought about stiffness like that, but I think now I would use the term rigid if I was trying to think through it in like a negative connotation. Like, I think there is some element of being a little bit stiffer in your mechanics that is positive versus like someone rigid, like you're saying, like if if you just have no maneuverability and like shouldery swings, like people who describe a swing as very shouldery and stiff. Like shoulder heavy, yeah. Yeah, like that would definitely be negative. But it, I do think there is a, an area where people can be, whatever the opposite of hypermobile is without being negative that is a positive for the player. I don't know. I'm still kind of thinking through it and how to apply it and, and learning more about um, just how the body moves in space and, and how teams are using it and how scouts are evaluating it. Cause I think there's a lot of interesting things that can be done with player development and, and even how you train a pitcher or a hitter who is like actually hypermobile, like their joints are legitimately hypermobile in like the scientific sense versus an athlete who has stiffer joints and stiffer muscles and just has different movement patterns. Like 
individualizing their their development to make the most of just how they're built as an athlete and how they're built biomechanically is is really fascinating to me it's an area that i'm by no means an expert in and i i just think it's really interesting yeah but anyways, no, i mean 100 percent. if you have you know a hyper mobile pitcher if you're a strength and conditioning coach or a team you know you're working on player development yeah you have to treat those players differently and monitor them in a different way than you would um, you know, more normally <laughs> yeah. mobile type type players, but especially I think when you're looking at young pitchers and, and trying to project them, I know from talking to uh, just, you know, a whole bunch of different clubs about this, like they are looking for that mobility, that flexibility, the kind of like elasticity in in young pitchers to be able to project them to to be able to throw harder um, when they're trying to look at years down the road at, at what they could become. So it's definitely something that clubs are are looking at when they're evaluating and, and trying to project younger pitchers. Yeah, it's really fascinating stuff. I need to read more about it and uh, just brush up a little bit and see what the, uh, the current experts are saying about the topic because it is fascinating. I think it's an area that the teams maybe will be able to find some separation in player development from from the teams who maybe aren't taking it as seriously. I'm sure like like everything else in baseball, there's a spectrum of which teams are, are really being aggressive in this area and which teams maybe aren't. Um, but yeah, I think that's all I had for today, Ben. Is there anything else that you wanted to, to dive into? I think the, I think we're good. That was a couple hours. Yeah, you know, a couple hours like we like to do. So that wraps up episode 37. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for subscribing if you are a baseball America subscriber, Ben, is there anything that we need to, um, to promo here at the end of the episode for, for BA generally for, for you specifically, if there's anything you're working on or, or just any last minute messages for, for the listeners. We do have the fantasy summit coming up later this month. I think that's yeah. going to be a great event. If you're, um, you know, if you're in that space, we got a lot of really good, really smart people on board for that. Um, not and just- me. Yeah, and also Carlos will be there, uh, but not not just people from BA, people from all around the industry are going to be a part of that. And if you are a Baseball America subscriber, uh, the cost is uh, zero dollars and zero cents. So nice. Uh, if you're not a subscriber uh, and you want to be a part of that, just uh, sign on. You will you will get full access to uh, to that event at the end of the month. Um, so that should be uh, I think a really really cool event that we're putting on for the for the community yeah that'll be fun i'll link the um the direct link that you can go to where you can sign up if you're not a not a ba subscriber where you can either buy tickets for that event specifically or you can uh just sign up to be a a member at baseball america and that'll get you get you in the door the virtual door for the event so yeah i think that's that's probably the main thing to plug here that's the big event coming up. I'm excited about it. Excited to see what what Jeff and, and Dylan are going to do with that event and, and just learn more about the fantasy space. It's definitely an area that I've been spending more time in over the past few years and, and by no means an expert, but I think there's there's a lot related to what we do in general at Baseball America and what people who play fantasy baseball um, want to know in that space. So it'll be fun. Um, look forward to that. And yeah, for Ben, I'm Carlos. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will see you next week.